Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org spring. And Trinity Rep, celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years, March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. Today on VPR, Hope Springs Ephemeral. In one year, there have been five White House communications directors, and Hope Hicks is the latest to step down, resigning one day after testifying that her job requires she tell white lies for the president. And another White House stunner, Trump's call for gun control and jabs at the NRA. Meet the President Chuck Todd joins us to take on these headlines, and we'll ask you if Trump's push for gun reform is real, or is this DACA all over again? Then former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrea Cabral joins us at noon for her take on how Black History Month turned out to be a pretty bumpy one for the Boston Police Department. A new frontline documentary looks at the shenanigans which for decades enabled Harvey Weinstein to evade justice and to silence the women he assaulted. From there, Congressman Mike Capuano joins us for his take on Trump unending gun politics. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Eastern Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. All I can say is, wow, Marjorie. Wow. <laughs> what a day. Wow. You know, the saying goes that the key to communications is brevity, but the Trump White House has taken that literally, making brevity key to their communications apparatus. After a brief stint as White House communications director, as you know, Hope Hicks is joining her predecessors. A total of four others have held that post in the past year. Her resignation comes a day after she testified that her job requires telling, quote, white lies for the president. And another stunner from yesterday, President Trump's hard turn on gun reform, bucking Republicans, saying they're afraid of the NRA. But is this clean DACA all over again, or is this one for real? Joining us online for his take on these and other headlines is Chuck Todd. Chuck's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston. He's also the host of Marjorie's favorite show, unfortunately for me, Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC, (laughs) and the political director of NBC News. Hey there, Chuck. Hey, good morning. Hello, Chuck Todd. So to reuse the cliche, I'm I'm hoping this could be President Trump's Nixon-like move on on China. I saw him at this meeting with the other senators yesterday. He's saying we've got to go for the guns first, get them away from the mentally ill ill people and people that shouldn't have them, and then go to the due process later. I mean, I am really excited about this. Am I being naive and stupid? I'm never going to call you stupid. <laughs> okay, naive. I, I, you, naive. You, you're not, I have not. I was bored in the evening, but not last evening. Um, <laughs> okay. But um, I, I have to say that I'm not. That I'm, you want to get to the naive part of things. I think, uh, you know, previous performance is to me indicative of, of future performance. And what's the previous performance? The so last time. Trump seemed to have one of these public, oh, look at that. That's interesting. When DACA, it led to what? Right? Yeah. So, uh, look, this this feels like he's really good at theater. Um, you know, these moments with him and these lawmakers, you know, it's like imagine if he actually followed through on any of this stuff. He could 
he could reshape American politics as we know it. He'd create all these new coalitions and this sort of, you know, this was the Trump that some people thought was possible, right? Oh, yes. the guy with no ideology. You know, maybe in, in the moment he'll create these things. At the end of the day, you know, Republicans walked away from that meeting going, all right, how are we going to put some handcuffs on him again? And so, look, it's, it's – I think yesterday was all show. All, you know, you know, let's – his track record says what, right? Until yep. he produces something out of this, I think you have to take it for uh, with a grain of salt. Well, I must admit that when I uh, tuned in yesterday to uh, uh, your TV show, I saw Senator Nelson, who essentially was saying the same thing, unless I was mistaken, the Florida senator. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it, it, well, we've all been down this road so many times. Now, that said, keep an eye on Tallahassee. I think whatever Tallahassee can pass, then there's no excuse for Washington to be able to pass it. If Tallahassee, if they raise the age, and I mean, Florida's the petri dish of the NRA, and if they're able to raise the the, the, the age on AR-15, okay, to, to 21 in Florida, then Congress has the then Congress has the political cover to do it too. So I think watch to me what can what can pass in Tallahassee can pass anywhere. What and watch Tallahassee. You know, by the way, the one thing Marjorie didn't add to her list that matters a lot in a state like ours, Massachusetts, is when he turned to Steve Scalise, the House member who was shot and still and said months ago that even caused him to reaffirm even more strongly his uh, his pro-gun stance. He said, you know, forget that reciprocity on the concealed carry thing. That's going nowhere. It doesn't have the votes. But let's assume, Chuck, for the moment that the president is not all show, that this is really heartfelt and that he's going to follow through. Does he have the power to convince enough Republicans to join with Democrats to do something meaningful? You do. Look, the fact of the matter is, if he's willing to provide the cover, there are more Republicans that would that would do things like support an assault weapons ban or raise the age. Look, you want to know what I think is possible out of this that that I think is realistic? I think raising the age on who can buy an AR-15. All right. I think that's I think that's possible. And I think the president's willing to to push the NRA on that. I don't think an assault weapons ban is possible. All right? You're, you're going to get one or the other that they're willing to, to, to stretch the capital on. I think raising the age is, is, the, is as good as it's going to get there. Real expansion of the background checks, I think, is, is real. I think at the end of the day, those two incremental reforms, it's more than it's been done in a long time. Um, but I think those are the most realistic that, that, that the president, if you actually look at him over time, seems to be consistent about sticking by. Everything else is a little pie in the sky. Oh, we're talking to Chuck Todd. So, Chuck, our lead producer, who I think Marjorie would agree is more insightful than either of the two of us are, I think it's she would... the case with talent and producers, guys. <laughs> Trust me. I, I mean, know. Why are we bothering? My producer should be on with your producer. Yeah. Right? What are we doing here? It's, it's like a daily man. humiliation. Yeah. So her, I don't know if she'd use the term all show, but her, her assessment of what the president was doing yesterday was deflecting attention away from a story that he knew was coming out a couple of hours later about how his son-in-law, uh, well, these are my words, not the New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, essentially used meetings in the White House to secure a mere half billion dollars in loans from two from Citigroup and Apollo something or other. Right. What, do you, what do you make? Uh, I mean, that story to me was so egregious, not the story, the underlying facts. I said to Marjorie this morning, he should just go to jail and have the trial <laughs> afterwards. I mean, it is unbelievable. Can you describe well, it a little, the people? And, 
the president endorsed that. Now take the guns, due process later. Put them in jail. Exactly right. You know, the, um, what, zoom out a little bit more when you when you're looking at the Jared story. I, I look at the Jared story. Look at it through the prism of 72 hours. D- today's story is bad, but let's start on Monday. On Monday, it, it, we find out for sure Jared loses his security clearance. And then what happens on Tuesday and Wednesday, essentially, or Tuesday night and Wednesday night, or, or Wednesday morning and, 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 and Thursday morning? We find out why Jared Kushner can't get a security clearance. Mm-hmm. First, the Washington Post reports intelligence intercepts of countries like uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and China and Russia – all hinting at ways that they feel like they can influence Jared in one way or the other. Then that's the Washington Post. Then bombshell two, what you just described. Not just loans for Kushner companies, gigantic loans, some of the largest either entity had made in a calendar year uh, for any entity. And it all happens to take place after the heads of, of these two entities meet with Jared in the White House. So it's as someone put it this isn't the appearance of a conflict of interest this is the definition <laughs> of a conflict of interest so what what i'm saying here is that this was today's story but to me it was about this is john kelly perhaps just sending the message like look to the president you can't waive a security clearance you can't waive this for him he has been compromised or there is an appearance of compromise you can't touch him. So I think that this is, I think the, I think Jared Kushner' political career um, is, is over. And the question is, how does he draw, wind this down? How does he leave? I don't see how he can function in this White House much longer. Well, you know, um, I read where uh, one of Obama's press people was talking about how she got married while she was in the White House. And the ethics rules were so stringent that she had to make okay the wedding gifts to make sure there wasn't any quid pro quo with any of her Mm -hmm. wedding gifts. Why did she just call Omarosa? She (laughs) could have dealt with it. But I guess the the contrast to the relatively scandal-free White House of Barack Obama or to the usual rules of the roles, whether whether it's Bush or or uh, any other Republican president, it just seems like it's it's black and white. It's like the OK Corral now. No, and and, and you have a, a, a Republican Congress that refuses to hold the White House accountable, right? They won't, and, and perhaps it's because of politics. They don't want to look like they're investigating their own. Um, you could make an argument that Republicans' threats to always look for a reason to investigate Obama made sure that's why the Obama people did followed everything, <laughs> dotted every I, crossed every T to avoid even the tiniest appearance in order to avoid any sort of congressional investigation. And I think you know this; these guys don't have anything to fear right now because nobody wants the gavel. The the one the government reform committee, which is essentially the committee that's supposed to hold the White House accountable. Nobody even wants that gavel right now. Jason Chaffetz quit. Mm-hmm. He loved it. He was looking forward to being in that committee chair when Hillary Clinton was going to be president, but he left. Now Trey Gowdy, he's retiring. Nobody wants this job because you do need to be looking into the ethic, uh, unethical practices of some of these officials. Um, this is how you are able to keep people from from doing quid pro quos in government. You have to let them know they're going to be held accountable, and when they're not, they'll run roughshod over the situation. And I think that's what you've seen with the Trump White House. They know no one right now in the Congress is going to hold them accountable. 
We're talking to Chuck Todd, moderator of Meet the Press and Meet the Press Daily. So, Chuck, uh, Hope Hicks has announced that she's going to leave the White House, and people know she uh, has been a, uh, a young woman who has been a loyalist to Donald Trump, supposedly a calming influence for him in the White House. She admitted she told some little white lies on his behalf when she was being questioned for nine hours uh, yesterday by the uh, intelligence ago, yeah. uh, two days ago, sorry, by the House Intelligence Committee. So, what? What? There's not that many of the loyalists left. What is the thinking about what this will mean for the president? You leave him alone with his Twitter. Yeah. I mean, it, it's who's there to comfort him. Uh, the the people he's most comfortable being around are all gone. His his longtime bodyguard Kelly got that was one of the first people mm-hmm. Kelly got rid of. Then you look at um, uh, you look at the fact that Jared and Ivanka both seem as if they're while they're there, maybe they're only there physically. They're certainly not there. They're 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 not able to be. Um, Thing, putting the president first. They've got their own problems. You've got, uh, obviously, how many different people with hope leaving. Um, no Corey Lewandowski. No, I mean, you look at all the people mm-hmm. that were with him during the campaign. They're all gone. And only, I think, Stephen Miller really is left. Kellyanne, who came on late, is still there. But who is going to calm him down? Who's going to tell him, don't tweet this? Hope was the last person that could tell him not to tweet something that served in that West Wing. Now it might be Ivanka, and that's it. And she's not always there, and she's certainly not very trusted by Kelly. So I don't know how this is going to go, but I can tell you this. I think John Kelly's created a bigger problem for himself. I think he needs to find somebody that the president loves being around and wants him around. And, and you know, whatever you think of the president, you've got to sort of work with the way he likes to work. And isolating him is not a good idea. Yeah. Do you have any insight as to what the Hicks departure is about? I mean, while a lot of people are speculating that it was Trump's alleged fury at her uh, agreeing to the white lies uh, uh, question when she was in front of the Intelligence Committee, but other sources that are allegedly reliable are saying she's been talking about leaving for days, if not weeks. Do you have any thoughts about this? Look, I, I, I know that the Porter situation was a – Game changer, and this is of course that staff secretary who couldn't get a security clearance because he had had two former two ex wives accuse him of battery, essentially um, um, both physical and mental and verbal, and um, that situation, her personal life going public, her family is not happy. The anyway, the point is, is that it, it, it is. There's no doubt that before the white lie incident, um, I, I think the way to look at white lie, it, it's sort of the straw. Right. It was this was all accumulating. This was this was her, taking a big toll on her personally. Uh, never mind the legal fees that are starting to accumulate um, uh, for her as well. Uh, and that's something. And yes, she comes from a somewhat wealthy family, but still that issue. And I think it's an accumulation, I think, in fairness, fairness to her, because I'd heard the same things that. You know, look, one year of the Trump White House is like eight years of the normal White House. I mean, in, in honest, all honesty, I mean, really I mean, is. everybody there is the same. We're all just everybody's just dog tired. You know, we I, used to joke every day is a week and every week feels like a month. But that doesn't even cut it. Every hour feels like a day. These days. I know. Look at yesterday. Yeah. I mean, it's just one day. I'm exhausted. My buddy Chris Eliza uh, over at CNN listed like 16 headlines in 48 hours that were Trump related. That you know, Any one of them would have been blaring, scandalous, breaking news that would have lived for a week in any other era. And these things were like, like 
15th on the list was Ben Carson, essentially, you know, the $31,000 dining room table, which under most circumstances probably would have meant it's the last dining room table he purchased as a government official, and he'd probably be out. But that's like, you know, that's like, you know, I'll deal with, if you're John Kelly, I'll deal with that next month, you know. And by the way, and what does Sean Hannity lead with, lead with us last night? A story about a Hillary Clinton scandal, ignoring every single he, one of these things. Me. At the lead. Hey, Chuck, before you go, this is a say it ain't so kind of thing. I love Jeff Daniels. I mean, I love Jeff Daniels. I didn't see it, but I read about your interview. And I used to love Woody Allen until he married his daughter. And then all the other things began, too. Right. You had a discussion with, I mean, obviously, Purple Rose of Cairo, I assume most people listen. One of the great films. Tell us about your conversation with him and where he ended up on your, your question about would you do it again? Well, I'll tell you, he 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 said he 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 didn't want to entertain the question, not because he wanted to avoid the answer, but he he basically he I don't think he knows what the answer would be. He 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 goes his production company's named after Purple Rose of Cairo. Oh, like it's it. the single most important thing that happened to him in his professional life. Okay, that movie. That's what he basically said. So he goes, you're 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 sort of asking me, you know about something that was the most important thing is, you know, I, you could see the struggle that he was having here. He came down, I believe, on the side of that he probably couldn't work with him again. But he he was struggling to shut the door to, uh, on all this because of what it meant for mm-hmm. his career. And he was struggling with, and I think a lot of um, I think a lot of artists are struggling with this idea, do you judge the artist? Um, you know, how much of the personal oh, sure. should, should, should be a part of the artist, you know, um, when you're judging a piece of artwork, does it matter to you if Picasso was a good guy or a bad guy? Right. You know, I, I, I think that was, he was, he was having that conversation. Um, and, and I think that unfortunately in this era, nuance isn't allowed as yeah. we all know. And I think he was trying to have a nuance. I just encourage people, listen to the whole podcast. You know, this was there was a we had some on the on the on the show about five six minutes of the interview on the show, but we did an entire podcast. Um, mm. um, we talked a lot about this. By the way, Jeff Dan, um, uh, he's got a he's from Michigan, yeah, and he's doing a play right now that may go to Broadway about Flint, um, and it and it's I didn't know, know that. Yeah, no, 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 no. And he he believes he also one other thing he said he said he believes this is a moment now that that more people in Hollywood need to produce things with a purpose. And so his play on Flint is about sort of a, you know, a family of four finding out a year before the state told them how bad their water is. They already knew it, you know, and then it, it goes from there. Well, Chuck, it's a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for your time. You thank, got it, guys. Yeah, thank you, Bye. Chuck. Chuck Todd joins us every week. He's moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston which is Channel 10 on most providers around here. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Thanks again, Chuck. Coming up, we're going to open the lines and ask you about this incredible day yesterday, focusing mainly on the president's seeming turn on gun control. Is he going to take on the NRA? Yippee-doo, we'll see. Our number is 877-301-8970.
back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Mardrigan. Last week at CPAC, you know, the Conservative Political Action. What's this final C conference? President Trump wowed his base. He solidified his perch as the leader of the GOP. He doubled down on the NRA's message that the answer to mass shootings is to arm the good guys and even warn the crowds of the dystopia that awaits them if the Democrats win Congress. They'll take away your Second Amendment, which we will never allow to happen. They'll take away your Second Amendment. Well, that was last Friday. So what do you make of what the president did yesterday, as we just discussed with Chuck, taking jabs at the NRA and going against his own party by pushing for what appears to be sensible gun reform? Is it real? Can he see where this gun debate is heading as more and more corporations take a stand against the NRA and students continue with their activism? Is this how he's felt all along about gun reform? And now maybe he feels free to talk. Or is this going to be the DACA uh, bait and switch all over again? Our number is 877-301-8970. You're hopeful, much more hopeful today well, than you I usually said to are. Chuck Todd, it's like, a, it, and I said this before, it's like Clinton, uh, Clinton, like Nixon goes to China. Yep. You know, I, I think it's really hard because Democrats have historically been for gun control and, and the GOP has been against it for a Democratic president to get anywhere on this. But but Donald Trump is beloved uh, um, by his base, obviously. A lot of them are beloved of the NRA. He's the only person, because of his position, I think, as a president, that can do this. And plus, where are people going to go? They're not Well, gonna... except you read the story in the, the New York Times or the Globe the other day, you know, the, the shoot him on Fifth Avenue, don't lose anybody. Apparently, he is losing... Even before yesterday, he was beginning to lose some of the most ardent uh, pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun well, people. Well, exactly. But are they going to vote for they Elizabeth don't vote. Warren? They and stay two, home. Well, they might stay home, but, but, they, but they might think, you know, when you calm down a little bit, that a guy that's semi with you is better than someone who's, who's against you. So I don't know. It could all be theater. It could all be a joke. But I got to say, I have, I have uh, not been a fan of Donald Trump oh, since he announced as a candidate. But I would be so thrilled if he can make a dent in the power that this organization has with its extreme positions on guns. Now, if you don't remember the whole thing with the Dreamers that we referenced with Chuck and then 30 seconds ago, this was a uh, meeting. This is the president, and he's agreeing with, I think it was Senator Feinstein at the moment, to pass a, a clean DACA bill. And what that means is uh, nothing, no wall-tied wall funding Pass a clean DACA bill, as it's called, then, only after doing that, moving to comprehensive immigration reform. Here's the president. We're going to come out with DACA. We're going to do DACA. And then we can start immediately on the phase two, which would be comprehensive. Would be agreeable Mr. To yeah, I would like, I would like to do that. Go ahead. I think a lot of people would like to see that. But I think we have to do DACA first. Some critics were saying he didn't know what a clean bill was. But a lot of people were saying, including, by the way, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, that he agreed to do this. And then he did an immediate 180. But I have to say, his comments yesterday, we'll play some in a few minutes, were so unequivocal to the point where, you know, the Toomey Mansion bill on background checks, yep. which we've been talking about forever. Yep. Mansion's a Democrat, moderate Democrat from West Virginia. Toomey is a moderate Republican, uh, at least on this issue, from Pennsylvania. He criticized Toomey yesterday. He asked him if, I think it's the age limit thing, was in the raising the age limit for purchase was in Toomey's bill. Toomey said nodded no. or said no, yeah. to which Trump, with a smile on his face, not viciously said, you're scared of the NRA. And Toomey said, no, I'm not, or some such thing. But it, it was like a... It, he was the only one, one of the room that was not scared of the NRA. He doesn't need him. Well, that's essentially what he <laughs> said, what by he the said. way. But you know, you know one of the things I think about the president? He didn't expect... 
expect to win, I think most of us suspect. And and because he hasn't spent his life as a politician, he wasn't going into all the details of these bills. It's really possible that the president didn't understand the all or nothing positions of the NRA that you know we don't want we don't want terror well, it's not possible I he think knows their no to everything everything I I don't know that he knew the details I don't know that he necessarily knew all these things because he used to be a pro gun control guy as was, you know yeah. uh, the NRA For gave a, him assault weapon weapons right. ban in his book they in gave 2000. him a lot of support his base is very much a pro NRA so I think it's possible he didn't know the details I don't think he knew the details of immigration or DACA I don't think he uh, understood a lot of these things because he was not somebody that spent his life in the weeds of policy. Yeah, but is the is the king of deflection? I think we'd agree. We mentioned one of our producers right. uh, to Chuck, and Chuck said the producers should do the show. A lot of people think the producers should do the show on both ends. Why are they raising their hands in the production booth over there? It's not that, that was not a real thing. Well, they all think ago. they could do it better than we do. That's and maybe why. they could. In any case, uh, it was Chelsea who said this morning, which I thought was a really interesting point, and I hope she's wrong, and I hope you're right. That it was just more deflection. He knew the New York Times was going to run with a story about his son-in-law and the half billion dollars in loans he extracted, uh, and right. that is a kind term, from uh, uh, financial leaders he met with in the White House. Uh, and he wanted to deflect that. I hope that's not true. By the way, here's the thing I mentioned a minute ago. This back and forth he had in this bipartisan gun meeting in the White House, this specific part about uh, age restrictions on when you can buy a gun. Here it is. You can't buy a handgun at 18, 19, or 20. You have to wait till you're 21. But you can buy the, the gun, the weapon used in this horrible shooting at 18. Uh, you are going to decide. The people in this room pretty much are going to decide. But I would give very serious thought to it. I, I can say that the NRA is opposed to it. And I'm a fan of the NRA. I mean, it's no bigger fan. I, I'm a big fan of the NRA. They want to do it. These are great people. These are great patriots. They love our country. But that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It doesn't make sense that I have to wait till I'm 21 to get a handgun, but I can get this weapon at 18. I don't know. So I was just curious as to what you did in your bill. We, you don't we, didn't, we didn't address it, Mr. President. I think you know we, why? Because you're afraid of the NRA. Right? That was the comment to uh, Senator Toomey, the Republican senator from uh, Pennsylvania. One last thing that we discussed with Chuck, just to update mm-hmm. people. As soon as uh, Chuck hung up, we happened to get the email that we always await from our favorite satirist, Andy Barowitz. <laughs> We're talking about Hope Hicks. <laughs> And here's what Barnes wrote this morning. Sarah Huckabee Sanders organizing Million Liars March to support Hope Hicks. And she says, in part, white lies like hopes were the lies of a promising beginner. If hope had been allowed to grow as a liar, I have no doubt that someday she could have been as consistent a dispenser of ginormous whoppers as I am. That's Andy Barowitz <laughs> on the Barowitz Report on The New Yorker. He really is. Yeah, so Sarah funny. Saunders has really raised it to, a, to an art form. I mean, it is amazing. You think she's, she's really effective? I mean, considering how impossible the job is, you actually think she's pretty effective. I think she doesn't it. get flustered. She, she doesn't just, get flustered, she just, true. She just stonewalls and stonewalls, and it's really okay. quite amazing the way she does it. Some of the emailers don't believe that uh, that Trump is going to do anything. Uh, Paul says anyone believes Trump will do anything is on a larger dose of narcotics than Trump is. I guess that's me. Uh, Carolyn says, did you guys see? I didn't see this. The hundreds of worshipers that gathered at a Pennsylvania church on Wednesday to exchange and renew oh, yeah. wedding vows, yeah. holding unloaded yeah. AR-15, 
uh, uh, rifle CNN says the church members said the ceremony was scheduled months before the Parkland shooting. They were following God's will to honor the Second Amendment. I, I don't believe ever there was any mention of the Second Amendment in the in the Bible. I'm not sure. <laughs> Even though uh, what's her name from the NRA has got the Ecclesiastes thing about uh, about I know, on her arm, uh, yeah. But I don't think that was referring to AR-15s either. And um, and uh, then we have uh, this is this is a common theory on the right that uh, this is from Art that says nothing will happen. Democrats will not abide a Republican, never mind Trump, getting where they weren't able to. That's a big theme. By the way, you know, uh, well, media. you know, but it is. I've said to you before, if Donald Trump, as much as he is reviled by the Democratic base mm-hmm. in this country, and obviously not beloved by most Americans. If he picked one issue that mattered a lot, like guns, to the left. and decided to do, as you said, Nixon going to China thing, yep. I'm not saying all of a sudden he'd be embraced, but a lot of independents would say that's what we thought we were getting. As you said a minute ago, a guy who was not ideologically driven, who theoretically did know how to make a deal, even though he's proven so far he doesn't, uh, I, I think it would cause him – it would cause Democrats major misery come November – if uh, uh, come the midterm elections, if Trump had a breakthrough But here. you have to keep in mind that if he were doing things like this, uh, it would be please a lot of independents. If he were, if he were not that. trying to undermine the EPA, if he were not trying to make these, which in the long run, horrible taxes. Yeah, but even if he stays with those horrible positions, well, first of all, taxes, more than 50% approval right now. Right now, because that's, that's a, a brilliant thesis. Give him something right now, make everybody happy, and then it goes away. And by that well, time, Well, by the time it goes away, he's going to be gone. Well, no. Well, Who totally will have goes either been away. elected by a second totally term or That's not. That's right, but it will get us through 2018. It will get us uh, at least right. part of the way through 2020. 877-301. It's the policies. I mean, if he did something for infrastructure, I think lots of people would be happy about that because they know how much we need it. is almost on a, in its own Yeah, sphere. guns is bigger. He could. All I'm saying is, I, who knows, he could be continue to be wrong or ineffective on infrastructure and all these other things. This gun thing is so huge, and the NRA is so powerful. I'll tell you something. If he actually followed through on this, which, by the way, Diane he may by the end of the Feinstein, day today have done a 180. Who you always point out that she's too old to still be in the Senate. I think she is. But she has been because she was involved with the Harvey Milk when he was murdered in his office uh, as mayor of mayor San, Francisco San Francisco many years ago. She was there, um, uh, not in the office, but she was yeah. in, uh, in the building. Um, uh, she has been a gun control Single issue person for quite, well, I shouldn't say single issue. That's been one of her Maybe, main yeah, issues she's been great on. for ever since. Yeah, so she was giddy yesterday sitting next to him. She was giddy. So was Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck well, Schumer. That's what I'm saying. I think the idea, the idea that, I mean, maybe some Democrats are that. That no, I didn't mean. No, 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 excuse harsh. me. I didn't mean Art was right that Democrats don't want gun control as a result. What I meant is the other point that Art didn't make, but it's a corollary point, is it's going to help Republicans and hurt Democrats in the midterm election if Donald Trump actually follows through. But if history is any guide, literally by the end of the show, he will probably have flipped again. Remember, by the way, we'll get to calls in ten seconds, thirty seconds. Remember last week? It was it last weekend? Yes, last weekend we were talking about the fact that he was for uh, raising the age limit for purchases and. Then and once he met with the NRA over the weekend, he had dropped that from his repertoire. So he did a flip on that, and he did another well, flip again. he may again. do a flip, but I, I want to I be hopeful at least for a I couple hope of hours right. here, Jimmy. You know what I mean? It's not been easy. Diane just emailed. Yeah, they're callers, too. The show, I know. I just Margaret. want to point this out before I show. move on. Regarding stonewalling, you know, yeah. I just said Sarah Huckabee is a really good stonewaller. Yeah, she is. Uh, Diane says, Trump has built his wall, and it's called Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Excellent. 877-301-8970. Let's go to Michelle in Millis. Hey there, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Hi. Oh, thanks. Hi. Um, the two points that you were both just making, I think, sort of, to me, kind of sums it all up. 
I um, I caught this morning a few um, a little bit of the of that meeting. You played you played the sound, but mm-hmm. I, I did see that at my house, and I was si- and I was thinking to myself as as I heard it, who in that room believes him? Who in the listening audience in America believes him? I feel like like you were just saying, his track record on how he's taken two steps forward, then he will go three back. He has no credibility. I mean, I would I would love to see something, anything. And I think, like you were saying, Marjorie, both had good points, that she was giddy. And Christopher Murphy from Connecticut, they want something. So, I mean, I don't think there's some skepticism in the email you read that the Democrats wouldn't want Trump to get that as a some sort of, you know, benefit to him and improve his standing with, you know, and stop the bleeding basically on his on his ratings and approval ratings. But I think that that's that's too skeptical and cynical a way to look at it. Well, we People should we should point something. out that, yeah, they that do want the, something. I the agree. night that Barack Obama was inaugurated, Mitch, McCon- Mitch McConnell and the powerful Republicans met at a restaurant in Washington. And what was their vow? To stop anything. Every single thing the this president swe- tries to do, whether it's good for election, the country or bad for the country. So we have not seen evidence of the Democrats stooping that low. We have seen evidence of, of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan stooping that low. Eight, uh, thanks for the call, Michelle. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Dan in Boston, you're next. Hey. Hey, I actually, as a person who suffers from bipolar and mental illness, mm-hmm. I'm actually more afraid that what's going to happen is he's going to drop his whole idea about gun issues and turn it into a stigma against uh, mental illness. And I just don't believe anything the man says anymore because he, like, you know, he just keeps switching everything he says. Yeah, and well, well you know, Dan. Um, obviously, there is a stigma about mental illness, which there shouldn't be. But, but I would not be worried about much happening on the mental illness front because it's very expensive and it's very complicated. And um, No, but he's not worried about the, the real actions. He's worried about a grand uh, uh, stigmatization, if that's a well, word, I of think people with is. mental health issues. Oh, I mean, no, unfortunately. Could, no, but the, the implication, I think, where you're going, Dan, is if they uh, they continue to pretend they're going to do something about that at the same time that they're defunding a lot of uh, mental health services in this country, at least in the tr- original Trump budget, uh, it sort of uh, taints anybody, even with the most minor and addressable mental health issues. Is that not where you're going? That's exactly where I was going. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 yeah, exactly. He's gonna he's gonna make it into a anybody who has mental illness is the problem, not the guns. Well, that's yeah. where he has been from time to time, and he may return. And I hope Dan, you're right, and I hope. He doesn't. Well, it, to me, that's just another deflection. It is, of course, it is. It a is. total and complete deflection. Well, especially since it's a fraud, as you mentioned, and I just mentioned. There's no money for it. Not only is no money, there's less money for it if Trump, if the president, is to get and his again, way. And again, as you look, the, 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 this idea that people are going to all be, and this is something maybe Dan is worried about too, that people are going to be sent away to to mental hospitals like people were years ago. That's just. It, it, that's not going to happen either. And the idea that... No, but do you remember, what's the name of the the killer in, no, in Massachusetts who had autism a couple of years ago, the young boy? Right. Uh, 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 he was on the Asperger's spectrum. He killed a, a child in the in the boys' room at the high school, and I forget which high school it was. It was a nice high school. Or was nice it a teacher? No, I can't, he killed another child. He did. Can you find out for yeah. us, please, who the, the names of both... Uh, parties but I think it was... No, 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 but let me finish. There was a concern, a deep concern right. in the autism community that the message that was being spread by those who had not dealt with that issue in their family was 
all autistic people are Actors. dangerous and to be well, it's on the spectrum right. are to be worried about because people don't know a lot about it. And right. those who have not dealt with mental health issues, well, well, here's some language. I mean, he refers yesterday to Cruz as a crazy man. Here right. is Donald Trump uh, talking about uh, uh, taking away the guns before someone's given due process. Take the firearms first and then go to court, because that's another system, because a lot of times by the time you go to court, it takes so long to go to court to get the due process procedures. Uh, I like taking the guns early, like in this crazy man's case that just took place in Florida. He had a lot of firearms. They saw everything. To go to court would have taken a long time. So you could do exactly what you're saying, but take the guns first Go through due process. I think Dan's point, I surely don't want to speak for him, but I, I think I agree with his basic point for sure, is when you use language like crazy man, whatever, crazy right. is, you know, the, the the careless rhetoric about people with mental health issues. Well, if Cruz had a mental health issue, well, then maybe that guy down the block that's got a mental health issue or your neighbor's son who has a mental health issue, they're dangerous too. And that yeah, is- you have to keep pointing out that, that, that mentally ill people, that just teeny tiny proportion of people with mental illness ever do anything violent, exactly. that many you of do. these shooters had no mental health history at all. The guy out in Las Vegas who so far has been the biggest mass shooter in our history killed 50-something and injured over 500. He had no mental health issues. And, and you just have to keep pointing those things out again. But on the other hand, um, someone, you know, Cruz had the interaction with police over and over again. It wasn't just that uh, his mother was worried about before she died, was worried about his, his violence and his mental health. So those kinds of things, you know, violent um, uh, outbreaks like the guy over in Winchester, who obviously was mentally ill, but he expre- was L. doing violent things over and over again in his neighborhood. I think you can differentiate. I hope you can differentiate anyway. Uh, let's go to Nick in Swansea. Hi, Nick. Uh Hi. You're on. Hi. You're on. You're on. Apparently you're not on. Let's try another one. We'll get back. Oh, you're there, Nick? No, I think we've lost him. Let's go to the next one. Tim in Worcester. Hi, Tim. Hi. This is Tim in Worcester. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Sorry about that. Great. Uh, I just want to say that uh, everything's turned into the bizarre world of uh, Donald Trump, and uh, nothing's believable anymore in the press, so it's really kind of turned into a reality show of press of what you want to believe, what you don't want to believe. I mean, I'm surprised that they don't have lookalike Trumps all over the White House now. I mean, Tim, which, 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 Tim, this drives me crazy when people say that there's nothing, you can't believe anything. Look at the New York Times today and tell me what gives you reason to think that that's not believable news. The story about Jared Kushner, the amount of money he got in a loan. Look at the story about the president's uh, uh, press. What is what is fake news there? Well, you know, something, give me something specific. Is, give no, me something with, specific. Just, the, the thing is, this is not an argument that I'm having with you. I'm in total agreement. It's just that it you can't get people to believe it. It's it just really sucks. Well, that's a, by the way, that was the point that that uh, that uh, Amy Chua was making the other day about political tribes. Is the, it's a tyrell line. She has updated it big time. You know the old line: "It's one thing to dis- mm-hmm. have a different opinion; it's another thing to have a different set of facts." I think your point, Tim, is people on different sides of these debates don't even agree on the underlying facts. They work well, with their own Fox News or MSNBC, CNN in facts. To Fox News, Sean Tim, Hannity last night. And what was he talking you about? Know, by the way, th- I didn't. T- I, I should have given credit to where credit was due. James Pendel from the Globe. This is where I saw this tweeted this morning that the lead story on Sean Hannity last night, where 
arguably one of the most jam-packed, mm -hmm. they're all jam-packed, news days, real news days out of the White House. And, uh, and by the way, one of the things we haven't mentioned at all today that is huge is the back and forth between Sessions standing up to Trump after Trump trashed the whole Justice Department. Sessions, uh, Sessions uh, fights back for once, and now apparently Trump is furious. Uh, Sean Hannity apparently leads with a story about the corruption of Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, by the way, occasionally we do they, things. That's occasionally what we... they do. Uranium One, it, it, which no matter that it's been debunked any number of times by real credible reporters and investigations, it, it, they keep bringing that up over and over again. By the way, you were right. Uh, it was John Odgren, who was the 16-year-old with Asperger's. Thank you to our co-workers who stabbed his fellow student, the 15-year-old right. James Allenson. That was the case where a lot of families who had kids with Asperger's or some uh, uh, level of autism were concerned that everybody was going to be painted with the same broad again, brush. And that was Dan's again, point. Has that happened? I don't know. I don't think it's I don't happened. know. I don't have that to deal with, so I don't know. Yeah, how I, I don't think that people... But you don't think this mental illness... I, I think the point that Dan made is a hugely important point. Yeah. The careless way in which it's discussed by most legislators who say they want to deal with mental health but aren't willing to fund, uh, spend a dollar to fund it is a way that does paint with a broad yeah. brush. It's well, really troubling. I've said something's crazy many times. So I, it's not, not just gonna... the line. It's a, well, it's more than the word. I mean, people know what your intent is, and it, intent is a lot. Nick from Swansea, apparently the line is fixed. You're back with us. Thank you. Okay, here's Nick. Hi, Nick. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I just want to let you think my, my own thoughts on what President Trump had to um, say yesterday. I think it's part of a well-thought-out plan between the, NR, the uh, uh, NRA, uh, the Congress, and Trump himself, of um, him announcing these points of uh, being anti-guns and, and pro-raising the age limit. Um, he, he is gaining popularity with taking that stance. But we also know that this is never going to go through Congress. And so the NRA is is in no danger and let him announce all these uh, points without um, uh, having any um, uh, adverse effect from that. He can only gain popularity. Can I tell you something, Nick? Is uh, I'm sure a lot of people are shaking their heads. I couldn't agree with you more. I could absolutely see it that Sunday meeting in the White House with the NRA, which, by the way, was not on his schedule, not on the president's schedule. I mean, he knew it was happening. It was not on his public schedule. Him saying, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, I know you're not going to like it, but don't worry. I'm not going to do anything. That is as plausible as anything else. And the whole distraction thing is plausible, too. So I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong. And I hope Marjorie's right. But I think, sadly, you make a very decent point. Nick, thank you very much for the call. Okay. We're talking about uh, a big news day yesterday. And one of the biggest parts is when the president of the United States seemed to be going against uh, the NRA and some of the things he said before and advocating for gun control. Do you buy it? Are you uh, think it's real or was it just one big reality TV show? Our number is 877-301-8970. You're listening to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about how President Trump has upended, at least temporarily, gun control politics. Yesterday, he takes jabs at his own party in the NRA at a televised White House meeting. And yeah, he's still firm on arming schools or arming 
teachers, but he's also firm, apparently, at least for now, on raising the age at which you can buy an assault rifle. And he was he appeared to be insistent on getting something done. We're talking, taking your calls and asking if you really believe it. Never Trumpers, can you concede that this may be good news? Trump supporters, where are you? And this particularly Trump supporters who are do not want NRA members or non-NRA members who don't want him to budge because you're worried about the slippery slope and you believe the Second Amendment is inviolate and that sort of thing. 877-301-8970. Maybe he was talking about that, uh, the red flag law, the extreme situation where if you have... Extreme risk restraining order, yeah. Where if you have many run-ins with the cops or incidents of of violence that the police can move in. Police are your family. uh, can yes. go to court and seek an order. Or can take away your weapons yeah, right. temporarily um, while there's some kind of court uh, uh, procedure going on. Anyway, let's go to John and Gardner. Hi, John. Hey, John. Welcome. Hey, kids. Um, I know you, you guys have lives and everybody out, do, out there does. I don't, as you know. So I, that, <laughs> I watched that whole thing yesterday because I record Shepard Smith. So I, I like Shepard Smith. Yeah, you too. I love Shepard Smith. Yeah, he's a I, Fox I reporter during thing. the day. Yep. So if I if I could share it to Dan's point, I, he repeatedly went back to the mental health issue, and it was almost comical how he referenced it. And the other thing he kept going back to was he was convinced that guns in schools are the way to go. Mm-hmm. Marjorie, with all due respect, I think Diane Feinstein and other people at that table were chuckling at his lack of policy awareness because she said she the only thing she brought up i think she spoke twice was about ar-15s and right. Bannon, right and at some point in the meeting he said well you know a lot of people diane has some good thoughts why don't you get together with joe manchin and uh toomey and we're, you know it was just so unrealistic he was asking a couple of and i'm not talking the first two years of the Obama administration when we all know that lack of anything done there. When he had but, the point, the reason John mentioned that, because he had a Democratic Senate and Democratic House, and he obviously could have done whatever he wanted. But go ahead. I know this is in reference more to like after Newtown and other more recent things. He mm-hmm. said, well, I don't understand why. Why didn't this get passed before? Why didn't this get passed? Whoops. Whoops. We lost. Oh, John, John we didn't hang up on you, but yeah. we did hang up on you, but it was unintentional. Sorry. Thank you very much. You know, in defense of Barack Obama, uh, at, at the time he came into office, we were in the worst depression since the, the Great Depression. So I think he had to get the stimulus through and he got health care through. Guns might have been a lot to do in that first two years. Well, except when you – the reality is you know what history suggests. History suggests your first midterm election – uh, if you control both houses like Donald Trump does, the likelihood is you're going to lose seats. You may even lose control of a yeah. house. And so, uh, uh, listen, I, I'm not belittling what he did I do. I mean, our 401ks are all very grateful. <laughs> I, I, I understand that. <laughs> to I'm the just nine saying, years of the uh, improved economy we've all had, right? I understand. I'm just saying that it could have been done and he didn't in the spirit of you know equal treatment of those who have not achieved uh, gun reform in our in our time, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy, and as we all know, it was all, it was after Columbine. It may not have been post Sandy Hook, but uh, uh, the beginning of this slaughter at schools had 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 begun. So, where Pat, do you want to go, Pat and Carver? Hi, Pat. Welcome, Pat. Hi, I love you guys, and Thanks. I've got my husband listening to you. Whoa, oh, good. Oh, it's my plus Jim at night. Whoa. Yeah. Huh. Wow. <laughs> the anyway, anyway. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to. Uh, Say to Marjorie, really, I I think you said that the guy in uh, Las Vegas didn't have any mental health issues. I don't think you could do something like that without mental health issues. 
I no, I think you're right, you. Pat. I think you're right, Pat, but I don't think there was a history there no, of, diagnosed or, of hospitalizations well, or run-ins with the mental many, health system. How many people do you know who are drunks or use a lot of drugs because they're self-medicating? Right. Mm. Just right. because he hasn't been diagnosed doesn't mean he, he was, wasn't crazy. I, I think he probably was, was pretty, pretty wacky. You know, Pat, the place you're going is where I am. I am of the belief that there is nobody, nobody who does these kinds of mass uh, shootings who does not have mental illness, which does not mean that they should not take responsibility. Uh, I'm not suggesting that at all, but I think it's an indictment of the fact that we don't take care of people. And as a result, even if you don't care about the shooter, all the people like in Las Vegas who are dead because of that uh, pay the price. So I agree with you. Yeah, but I I think the other thing, Pat, and, and, and my big thing is that there are an awful lot of people who have some kind of mental illness. I mean, you read the statistics every year, about 40% of kids that go into college are taking some kind of Everybody listening has it in their family. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody. So the, so the point, everybody is not going to have an official uh, record. You know what I mean? So if we're trying to prevent people from getting guns by way, just checking out they have an official record, and of course, we always forget the gun show loophole. Um, the, the problem is not mental illness. The problem is guns. I guess that's where I'm coming from. By the from. way, did, did Trump and Pat, thank you for making your point, And thanks to your husband. Thanks to the whole family. Uh, did Trump not mention the gun show loophole as well yesterday? Am I right about I think he did. If he did, I didn't hear I it. I think he did. Eight but seven... we should ask John since he watched the, take the whole thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, we hung up on John inadvertently. Let's go to Stephen Taunton. Hey, Steve, how are you? Well, good yourselves. Great. I think that I think that meeting yesterday was a waste of time without the leaders of both parties there. So mm. I don't think that really did anything to move the ball forward. But well, the, there. Are, wait, I, by the way, I I think that's a legit point, which I wish we had made. But there were some key players on this issue. Where the, would you agree with that? Right. Would you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so go absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. But um, will, do they agree on say uh, universal gun carry across the states? No. Congress will never. Well, House passed it already. House passed it. Right. But the Senate won't get to That is correct. God, let's hope um, not. And um, also, do they agree on the age, raising the age of 21? No. No. They don't agree on that. No. Do they agree on uh, AR-15s? No. No, they don't agree on that. Do they agree on universal background checks? After that meeting, what I gleaned was, yes. Do they agree on banning bump stocks? Trump is going to take care of that. So, yes. So what I would... If if I were re- Republicans, I would pass a standalone bill that 97% of the country want, and that is to pass closing the loopholes, gun shows, universal background checks, I think could get 60 votes. But the thing is, the Democrats won't pass that. Steve, before, if, if I can, Steve, pass, Steve, that last sentence, you were right. They want more. However, the one factual mistake in what you said is, the House's vote for, which has already happened, for universal background checks or expansion of background checks, I don't know if it's universal, had attached to it the reciprocal concealed carry thing. So if you talk to, if you see on television or read in the paper, some of the highest profile, most powerful Republicans, I've heard virtually every one of them say yes to background checks, but only if concealed carry reciprocity goes with it, which has zero chance in the Senate. So to say that there are four universal background checks is not really true because there are only four of them in tandem with something that's unacceptable. Well, that's you know what, what I mean? That's what Steve Scalise, yeah. the, the congressman that you was shot. You understand my said, point, Steve, yes, right? Yeah, I do. Okay. But I've got to ask you this. Sure. If, if, um, 
universal background checks, the uh, gun show loopholes, the requirements, whatever the waiting day period is, all that stuff. If that is passed, can't you then propose that it's now okay to pass gun carry across the state lines? No. I would be horrified if I had to worry about being in Massachusetts, which has some of the strictest gun laws in the country and therefore is one of the safest places to live in the country, that I was going to be surrounded by people that I didn't know were carrying weapons. Steve, we have done very little research on on gun violence because, as you know, the Dickey Amendment prevents the CDC from doing that. But I was just reading yesterday, what little we do know means that when you have the more weapons you have, in a concealed carry situation, the higher the violence goes up, and it starts going up the moment those weapons get easier to, to carry. So I, I'm not Steve, willing to, um, to have somebody next to me at the soccer field. By the way, the criterion for the whole point of for concealed carry in some states is not only much lower than the threshold here. In some states, it's zero. All you do is apply, and then you can carry in Massachusetts. Okay, up next, we're going to talk to Andrew Cabral, the sheriff of Suffolk County. We're going to talk to her about the latest law and order stories, Boston police, etc. She's next. At noon on today's BPR, former Suffolk County Sheriff and former Secretary of Public Safety Andrew Carbell joins us for her take on what has been a bumpy month for the Boston Police Department when it comes to race relations, starting with a red Auerbach tweet and ending with a heated exchange between a white officer and a black man. For decades, Harvey Weinstein got away with sexual misconduct. We talked to Frontline's Rainy Aronson about their new documentary, which looks at how Weinstein got away with it and the people who helped him along the way. We'll talk to Boston Globe reporter Sean Murphy, a one-man consumer protection bureau by way of his column, The Fine Print. There he takes on some of the toughest problems and solves them, from Amazon's mystery deliveries to a couple getting slapped with a $30,000 electric bill. Then we wrap things up with poet Richard Blanco and another edition of Village Voice. All that is coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Houston Browdy, I am Marjorie Eakin. You are listening to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So here with us in Studio 3 for another edition of Law & Order is former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety, Andrea Cabral. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Jim. Hello, Marjorie. So, Andrea, we were kind of excited at the prospect that we would have a candidate for district attorney right here in our studio. Then you tweeted out that you, the Suffolk County district attorney, people don't know, Dan Connolly's not going to run again. And we thought the former sheriff of Suffolk County might be... Former assistant DA, too. But but no go, Andrew? You tweeted that out this weekend? How could I leave all this? <laughs> too, way too much You to could ask. be on once a month as Ask the DA. That's exactly. Not the, that's not the why'd same. Why'd you decide, not, seriously, why'd you decide not to do this? No, because I genuinely do want to do the stuff that I do here. Really? Yeah, I do. I do. Great. Well, you're pretty good at it, so I think that's a good thing. It's, you know, it's different, but that? it's freeing. I mean, there's there's a certain amount of, you know, um, I tend to, you know, go all in on stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I take a job like that, then I, you know, I work a lot and I try to, you know, change things and reform everything that I can. And it can be exhausting. And that fight is is difficult. It's not that it's not worth it, but... Um, 
I haven't been doing it for a while, and I'm and I've been looking at other things, and and uh, this interests me a little bit more. Are you well, you know, there's also a just the facts man quality to being a district attorney. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is, I, I, we've often said. I mean, it's nothing, uh, uh, not first with me, but the DAs have a great deal of difficulty transferring and to run for larger office. Well, it's mostly for- AG. It's like attorney general disease. I mean, how many yeah. attorneys general who are really competent, really competent, have run for governor from? Uh, uh, right. Well, that's the route. They become Martha DAs. They're great DAs, and they become Tom attorney Riley, generals. Tom Riley to Bellotti to the Scott Harshbarger. I mean, they. All not been so is that part of it? Well that's I think that's more an issue of prosecutors in some sense, and this is just my observation, I'm sure people will disagree with me, but prosecutors in some sense don't make the best candidates. Almost by nature. I mean I you know, they had to drag me kicking and screaming out of that office in June of two thousand and four with a primary in September mm. because I was sort of focused on doing the job. And there's also something about the ju- it is a just the facts kind of a job. So and it's also based sort of in logic and evidence. So you sort of have this idea of like, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. I've done this job before. You mean I have to actually tell that to voters? It's just it, it's just a it's mm-hmm. just a way of thinking. And I can think of a string of former prosecutors who who found running very difficult for that reason. I'm going to tell a story about Tom Tom Riley. Yeah. Oh, okay. go ahead. Okay, this is not telling tales out of school. Do you no. think it is? N- no, no, it's not. We had a pathetic little. Well, whatever. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> We had a show at like 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday or something, whatever it was, for a little while on our old station. It wasn't on the radio. It was on the radio. It was on the radio. It was on the radio. I thought it was on the thing. We had a pathetic little television show for a while, too many years ago. Really pathetic. (laughs) Did you have a TV show? Together? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we did. We did. I didn't know that. Well, nobody else did either. That was the problem. Well, it, Alex, was that the TV show that Alex Bean referred to as Under the Radar? Under the Radar, radio? that's right. In any case, but let's get to the point quickly. We went. I will. We came and went Tom unnoticed. Riley, we were doing this show, and Tom Riley was running for governor. We had each of the gubernatorial candidates in on a different weekend. And during the break, during the commercial breaks, and they were long, this is always commercial radio, Marjorie says to Tom, uh, by the way, you know, I covered the trial where you actually did the prosecution. He wasn't just the attorney Eddie general. O'Brien. You, no, it wasn't it Eddie wasn't O'Brien. O'Brien. It, was the, it was the guy who killed the children and the pregnant mother up in Townsend. And he, one he, of the worst he staked cases her organs ever. in the front, right. on the front lawn. So in yeah. any case, and yeah. Marjorie and he are talking back and forth, and Riley's description of what it was like to prosecute that case was so powerful and so raw and so great. So we come back from the commercial, and I said, uh, Attorney General, during the commercial, you and Marjorie were talking about a trial that you prosecuted directly and that Marjorie covered. Can you tell us about it? And he said, the perpetrator entered the edifice. (laughs) No, not I'm exaggerating a little, but he returned to Attorney General speak. And it is hard in public. I know you're not in agreement. You, you, you lapse into, I mean, you spend so many years reciting the facts before judges. You do have a tendency to lapse into that. Um, and Well, you also are you, not into big time disclosure right. of things that you don't have to disclose. Exactly, because you, there's often an economy of right. time when you're before the judge and you're trying to prioritize what the judge needs to know. So it's different when you're in a house party and people want you to embellish. Sometimes that can be challenging. Are you going to endorse the candidate or you're not? Uh, I might. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't know. Okay. In any case, well, I'm going to spend the minute on this because we talked a lot about guns today. But I, I thought this was <laughs> like from The Onion when I first saw this. There is a study out of the New England Journal of Medicine about the saying that gun injuries fall during NRA <laughs> conventions. It's unbelievable. They fall nationwide 20% and in the state 20%. in which... 20%? Wait, it's in, more incredible. In the state in which the convention is held, gun injuries fall 
Fifty percent. As a former person in the law enforcement game, what's your reaction to this? Well, initially, when I saw it, I thought that's sort of a facile kind of equation, right? Because people are at a convention, therefore gun injuries fall. And then I saw that the study was done by the New England Journal of Medicine. Medicine. Which is which which does have enormous credibility, but that is that's exactly what they said. And they looked at it says they looked at the number of hospitalizations and emergency room visits tied to firearm injuries during convention dates um, during the three weeks before and the three weeks after conventions. And they combed through nearly 76 million medical insurance claims filed by privately insured patients between 2007 yeah, pretty and 2015. Yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with that. And so there's 80,000 gun owners at these conventions. Well, but think yeah, about this. If they had a perpetual convention, right. think about what we could do in this country about... Right. <laughs> If it was just never-ending, you wouldn't need. You wouldn't actually need legislation? Yeah, you could have one of those big casinos, you know. We're going to have one. Maybe Steve Wynn could be doing something. I guess he won't be doing much, will he? Did you read the latest story on Steve Wynn, speaking of that? That he raped a woman, got her pregnant back in the 70s. That's alleged. That's correct. Alleged. We're talking to Andrea uh, uh, Andrea Corbell, former sheriff of uh, Suffolk County. So um, it's it's been a controversial week for the uh, Boston Police Department. Uh, We talked to Bill Evans, the commissioner, about this. They got in trouble or were criticized for tweeting out during uh, the beginning of Black History Month or honoring Red Auerbach um, for his contributions. But other people, including Mel King, said that we were a little bit too harsh on the police department. Where do you come Cedric down Maxwell, on that? by Cedric the way, Maxwell, also yep. thought it was totally appropriate. Uh, Mel King, who I assume most people know, one of the Ran most respected African-American leaders in the last 50 years in the city. But go ahead. I, I had a mixed reaction to it. I mean, my certainly my initial reaction to it was... Um, you, uh, it, it seems odd that you you couldn't find a single black person to tweet about, especially a black person in law enforcement, perhaps historically uh, in law enforcement to tweet about uh, as a tribute. And then I also thought, but the but the idea of desegregating sports is important historically. Um, I think the reaction that they got was largely due to the fact that there's probably been no end to accolades for Red Auerbach over the years, and especially in Massachusetts, for doing what he did. It's not that he suffers from a dearth of recognition in this regard. You mean not just for winning championships? Not but just for, for, yeah. but for, yes, but for how he, he dealt with the Celtics mm. uh, as a team overall um, and, and diversity in that team. So he, he's, he wasn't, um, um, you know, sort of unsung and unheralded for any of that. Um, meanwhile, there are there are a number of stories of uh, you know, um, black men and women in law enforcement that are unheralded and unsung, and that's that might have been a more appropriate finding. One of those might have been a more appropriate um, way to acknowledge the month. And uh, by the way, despite the the comments from people like King and Maxwell and others, uh, Evans, uh, I'm not doesn't undo what they did. Went out of his way immediately, as did Walsh, to say it was insensitive. We shouldn't have done it, etc. But I would argue a more serious issue is one that happened. Uh, it actually came to light. He was with us on Monday, and this didn't come to light until later the same day, was this video of a stop of a black man in uh, Boston by a uh, white cop, which got a little contentious. Can you tell the story a little bit and then fill in the blank? Tell us what you think about it. Yeah, apparently um, this young man was just walking down the street. He saw the two officers in the car go by him, and he actually anticipated and he was right that they would circle the block and come back around and uh, stop him, which is exactly what happened. He anticipated it, so he took out his phone 
Um, I think his name is Keith. Is it? Is his last name Maxwell? Uh, I'm looking for. We'll find it in a second. Antonio. Okay. Antonio. Keith Antonio. Keith Antonio. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he immediately took out. As soon as he he was actually, you could hear him in the video saying, "Yep, you know, as they're coming around here, they come here, they come." And he took out his phone, um, and he began to he immediately began to videotape the encounter, and he was. <laughs> this he was doing nothing wrong. He was literally walking down the street, and he was stopped. And the officer said, uh, "Is your name Kevin?" And he said, "No," because his name isn't Kevin. Um, and uh, the officer proceeded to ask him a couple more questions. He, "What is your name?" And he said, "Why do you you don't you don't get to ask me my name, or why do you need to know my name?" The officer got out of the car within seconds of asking those questions. And why aren't you at work? Didn't he ask him? Well, too? that came yeah. sort of later. But the fact that you're on a public street and an officer get not only stops and asks you questions, which you don't have to answer. Um, but gets out of the car and comes towards you. That's the beginning of an incident, right? That's the that's a stop, right? If if you're if he's saying, hey, 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 wait a minute, which is what he said on the videotape, he's stopping you to ask you questions. He asked him a series of questions about who he was and what he was doing, and asked him if he was just on the street killing time. And the the gentleman responded, you know, it's none really none of your business. He didn't say these words, but it's really none of your business. So why are you asking me this? You don't have any right to ask me this. I don't have to answer you. And it sort of escalated and got more contentious from there. At one point, the officer took out his own phone um, and sort of began videotaping. Um, I, I, unless I heard this wrong, I don't think I did. There were two officers in the car, and one, the officer that stopped him, his name is Zachary Cross, and the, the other officer, I thought he said his last name was Kelly, but I'm not sure, really did sort of stand off to the side and not really get involved in it at all. And a, a couple of times, it seemed as though... Uh, and uh, Mr. Antonio said to the other officer, I appreciate you, in other words, standing there, unless I misheard that. But I, I watched it twice, and I thought that was what I heard him say. I appreciate you standing there. Um, and if I'm wrong, I'll, you know, I stand corrected on that, but that's what I thought he said. But in any event, it it turned into this sort of, you know, you, the first question of, you look like somebody we want to talk to, to the officer getting out of the car, approaching him, saying, wait, 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 hold on, which is a stop. And then this sort of back and forth, which was completely, it was just completely wrong. It's, you know, there is a thing called an FIO, the field interrogation and observation. But generally you have to have, you have to be in active investigation of a crime or suspect that the person that you're stopping is involved in a crime. You look like somebody we want to talk to is not, is not an articulable fact that would, that would, um, support that. And I, I would actually would like to know whether or not the officer filed an FIO report of that encounter. You know, a couple of things here. One, it, there's been a lot of focus uh, by some on the notion that uh, Mike McCarthy, who does communications, Lieutenant McCarthy for the police, said that that Antonio, gave, I think the cop's name is Cross, and gave him the finger, etc. That's after the fact. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not right. defending behavior like that. The issue is, should he even stop to begin with? And I'll tell you, my takeaway from this, because I don't have your experience, and it is troubling, and the cops admitted, uh, Evans admitted in the press conference, or I think it was a press conference that uh, on Monday afternoon, that troubling, too, learning experience, whatever. That may not be enough for people. What it well, he is, said the cop is going to be counseled. What, right. What it is for me more than anything else is yet another huge piece of evidence that we need body cameras, is that while we're waiting for the final report from uh, the consultants, I think at Northeastern, I think right. in Evans, uh, Commissioner Evans told us the other day we should have it by June, public should have it by June, uh, if the guy had not used his own phone, 
we'd be fighting back and forth about right. what really happened. Now, luckily, it ended without any harm to either person, physical harm to either person. But doesn't this, a body well, here's camera... A, here's a great quote from Jamal Crawford, who is a longtime activist in Roxbury, does that Blackstonian uh, uh, blog. He said, um, this, this is further evidence uh, of what top officials in City Hall and the Boston policemen have, all, have done, which is disputed, dismissed, diminished our community's experience, testimonies that say this type of interaction exists. And he, he's got a point, I'm sure. Well, stopping someone like that on the street because you think you can, without regard to what the law requires, the the level of of, uh, probable cause or even reasonable suspicion that the law requires that you have, is always going to be a problem. And so the context for this is there have been a number of reports issued over the years about um, FIOs and and whether or not people of color get stopped more frequently than white people in FIOs. So there was was a report that came out um, in 2016. I think it measured um, roughly 140, roughly 150,000 FIOs where race was noted. Um, and found that a couple of very interesting things. One, over 80% of the field interrogation and observation stops were made by only 20% mm. of cops. They oh, accounted really? for they accounted for over 80 just just over 81% of those stops are only being done by 20% of the police officers in Boston. And of those uh roughly 150,000 um Sixty-two percent were black people. Even though the population point, is fucking right, thirteen thirteen point seven percent were oh. uh, Hispanic. Um, a much smaller percentage were Asian, and the remaining percentage was white. So there's a context and a backdrop. This is this is not people just you know. I, I don't think you can be overly sensitive about uh, having your constitutional right to freely associate and walk on a public street encroached. But this is not an overreaction. This has been measured in a variety of different ways over the years in Boston, and it remains a problem for at least a percentage of the of, of BPD. You know, when I mentioned a minute ago the thing I said about body cameras, further evidence we need them. You looked at me like you didn't think that. That does make that. Was I reading you wrong? No, no. You, yeah, you are. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, that trying you to do, convey but, that. But it's yeah. so obvious to me for both sides. As, as Commissioner Evans has been candid enough with us to say, it also is good for the cops. Right. And so it comes down apparently to money, and we'll see. In any case, talking to Andrew Cabral, I want to play a little sound for you, Andrew. Most people remember this. This was Jake Tapper asking. I believe it was uh, was a candidate Trump at this point. I think so. I think so. About comments he made about the judge. In the Trump uh, University case, his name is Curio. You said that you thought it was a conflict of interest that he was the judge because he's of Mexican heritage, even though he's from Indiana. Hillary Clinton uh, said that that is a racist attack on a federal judge. Oh, you know, she's so wonderful, you know. I mean, here's a woman that should be put in jail for what she did with her emails, and she's commenting on this. Let let me just tell you, let me just tell you, it's very simple. I have had horrible rulings. I've been treated very unfairly by this judge. Now, this judge is of Mexican heritage. Okay, I'm building a wall. I am going to do very well with the Hispanics, the Mexicans. So everybody. no Mexican judge could ever be involved in a case well, that involves you? Uh, he's a member of a society where, you know, very pro-Mexico, and that's fine. It's all fine. But Except I think, that you're calling it the I question think he should recuse himself. Because and he's Then Latino. you also say, does he know the lawyer on the other side? I mean, does he know the lawyer? You know, a lot of people say But I'm not yes, talking about that. I'm talking well, no, about that's, like, another, that's another problem. But you're invoking his race when talking about whether or not he can do his job. Jack, I'm building a wall. 
okay? I'm building a wall. Jake Tapper was spectacular in that. However, the uh, in the irony of ironies, uh, Judge Curiel is back in the news. What is he back in the news about there, Andrea Carell? Do you know? Well, he actually sided with the government's position on um, the right to build the wall, but not not the right to build the wall uh, generically, but the right to waive certain environmental laws in order to get the wall built. But, you know, as I listen to that again, you know, everything, everything that he says, I cringe at. But you just listen to that blatantly um, racist comment and you listen to, you know, all the comments about Hillary Clinton, especially in light of the fact that, um, you know, if he can't feel Mueller's breath on his neck, he's just not paying attention. Um, But what a disgrace he is. And I know that no one will ask him now because you can't pin him down. He only gives interviews to Fox News and he only watches Fox News and he doesn't talk to the American press. Well, he does some press availabilities. He actually does. He does do some press. But go ahead. On rare occasions. And what they let him do is they let him just ramble. It's not as though anybody is pinning him down as the press should be doing. But he'll never he'll never be held to account to say, well, Judge Curiel just, you know, ruled in, in favor of the government on this. What do you say about him now? Because because no one ever really holds him to account for anything. But I, you know, Curiel's, Curiel took an interesting position on this. He sort of said, um, and it's not an unusual position, but he said, you know, uh, he actually quoted uh, Justice Roberts and said, it, you know, it's not the job of judges to, um, uh, you know, uh, make the law or uh, 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 enforce the law or something. I mean, I, I'm... I forget the words he used, but he quoted Justice Roberts in in um, support of this sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of strict constructionist view of this, because um, the other side re- was making what I thought was a strong argument about the environmental harm that will ensue, regardless of whether or not the the government can actually waive these laws, there isn't there a public policy reason why you might want to look at the harm that will ensue? I mean, judges also do that every single day and make rulings based on whether or not there's a public, a good sound public policy ru- ruling to rule against the government. I know, you mean, I worked there for 28 years and you get ruled against regularly. So I thought this was sort of interesting, but it clearly was. I don't think he was bending over backwards, certainly to curry favor with the Trump administration. I think he, he ruled the way he believed was appropriate. But I do see that there was a there was a basis where he could have ruled elsewhere in protection of the environment. We're talking to Andrea Carell. So let's talk about this Oakland mayor who uh, tipped off uh, immigrants about an ICE raid, uh, immigration raid, and uh, is pretty defiant about it. What do you make it? Tell the story. Good what for make, her. Yeah. Good what, for her. I mean, she, she got... Was she, she breaking she, the law by doing this? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I'm not aware of any law that says that you have to keep the... Uh, the details of an upcoming ice raid secret. She went on television and basically said, I hear reports saying they're coming. Yep. 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 I don't see that she broke the law at all. And in fact, um, you know, ice of course is apoplectic about it. And they're talking about how she threatened public safety. My response to that is prove it because the people, um, over half of the people that they are picking up are law abiding people who pose absolutely no threat to public safety. And it was it's disturbing to read this. But this article was in was this in the Washington, Washington Post. Post? Yeah, it was disturbing to read how um, completely unleashed 
ICES under Donald Trump, where they are sort of proudly saying, basically, no one is safe, and we're going to come and get everybody, and don't stand in our way, and you know, uh, or will there'll be backlash for that? And it's the whole thing is outrageous. They, they, in my view, have turned into a rogue agency because the people they are they are literally tearing families apart. Um. And it is not anything about uh, there's not there's not even a pretense that the people that they're arresting are people who have criminal records that pose a threat to public safety. It's simply making sure that people from specific countries or certainly some countries far more than others are removed from removed from the United so, States. So uh, can we get back to whether one uh, is in favor of sanctuary cities or not? Let's get back to the Marjorie's original question. I I'm not citing any law because I don't know it. How is that not interference with the administration of justice for a public official? I'm just thinking out loud because I don't know. You would know. You obviously do know what the answer is. A public official uh, gets word that an agency of the government is about to do what it is legally entitled to do until challenged otherwise. And another public official, that same public official, announces uh, that that other government thing that is about to act to frustrate its ability to enforce the law, at least according to that. How is that not? If Marty Walsh stood up tomorrow and said, uh, by the way, I hear there's going to be a drug raid tomorrow morning in blank in uh, in uh, uh, Charlestown, and it's going to be at so-and-so, and I just want to alert you that they're coming for you tomorrow morning. Would that not be, is that any different? Would that not be a violation of the law? Define justice. Well, whatever is you said, isn't that an interference no, with the administration well, the, of justice? As long as justice. until something is. By the way, I'm not defending this, but I'm saying until the act of ICE or the DE Drug Enforcement Agency, in the case I did, until it is declared illegal when someone challenges it, the presumption I assume is that they're operating legally. And if ICE is operating legally, even if we don't like what they're doing, how is the outing of the imminent raid not? in interference in the the administration of what they perceive to be and is legally as of the moment justice no how how is the outing of the raid illegal in any sense i don't know i don't think if that Marty it is Walsh did i think i have a first amendment right would it, that be illegal and if if, what, if marty walsh said where there was going to be a drug raid wouldn't it matter the reason he was saying it well, if he said it because he doesn't believe in the uh, – just like uh, Mayor Schaft doesn't – I shouldn't have picked Marty Walsh. The generic Marty Walsh. Just like Mayor Schaft does not believe in these uh, raids of, that the federal government is doing, Marty Walsh, let's say, concluded the DEA was going overboard because they were, I don't know, discriminating against Latinos. So they I want accessory I, before the fact. I want to warn you that they're coming. Would that be a – that's not a crime? Uh, as far as I know, it's not a crime. But well, I would say this. If – if that was the appropriate um, outlook to take all the time, no one would have ever sheltered Jewish children or Jewish families mm-hmm. in Germany. It never would have happened. Civil well, disobe- but civil disobedience of things that you think are unjust, whether, it, whether it's you want to call it civil disobedience or exercising your First Amendment right to tell people something that you know, whether it's at a pu- as a public official or not, is the essence of maintaining... Um, People's right into but rights it doesn't mean me it's not justice. a crime. There are a lot of people who have been the who have elevated civil disobedience to an art form. There was a Reverend King not too long ago who went to jail because in by exercising his right to do civil disobedience, he was violating. He was 
breaking the sure. law. So again, I'm not arguing with the motivation. I'm not arguing with the the principle of the actor. I'm just saying you can be a principled person and also be violating the law. You right. say so, they're not. Right. So you, no, no, no. What I'm saying is if if there's a federal law that says that obstruction of justice is um, uh, interfering with an ongoing investigation, mm-hmm. right? That's what I guess I was trying to say. Yeah. Which is Thank which you. that would be like the Donald Trump thing that we're dealing with, right? Interfering with an <laughs> ongoing investigation. In, yeah, yeah. Because that's that's constant. Um a raid, I don't know that a raid necessarily is an investigation, mm. right? You've already concluded where you're gonna go okay. and what you're gonna do. But even if it is even if it is considered to be an investigation, I I I will I will not say that I have a problem with the fact that she did this or the fact that she did it in her capacity as a mayor. Because this Because is, the means in this case justifies an end that you support, right? Par- partially, yeah, yeah. certainly. I mean, but it doesn't just justify an end that I support. It justifies an end you have a federal agency that is literally going into hospitals and courthouses. By the way, I totally agree with you. Right. But it's not just an, it's not just something that I support. It is in my it objectively wrong. It is objectively wrong when the president's mandate was bad hombres, which I find incredibly offensive and, and profiling just in and of itself. But that was the that was a term yeah, that he used. Yeah. And they are clearly doing something far more in line with what Stephen Miller and, and Steve Bannon would like to see to result in a certain demographic in this country being predominant. That's just what it is. And it's wrong. Nice to see you. <laughs> so I, I regret to say that we can't end on an upbeat animal story. Do you have any quick animal stories you'd like to share with us? No, because uh, the hero cow died. Hero we talked cow about the died. hero cow. And well, we died. have the deadbeat dad that got caught in Canada. Yeah, well, that's good yeah. news. That we'll talk about good, that next right. time. Were, were, were kind of rodents or canines involved? No, no, no. He just no was. He just owed like a, like over he half is an a million animal, dollars. Is her point. Okay. Yeah. Nice okay. to see you, Andrew right. Cabral. You can Andrew always Cabral. count on the Canadians. I just want to say that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Andrew Cabral joins us every week. We're bummed out she's not running for DA, but oh well. She's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. Thanks, Andrea. Up next, a new Frontline documentary looks at the insiders who enabled Harvey Weinstein and the victims whom they silenced. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egans. For decades, the Academy Awards might as well have been called the Harvey Weinstein Appreciation Evening. This year, it will be anything but at Sunday night. Now that an avalanche of sexual misconduct allegations, as you know, have driven him into exile and his production company into bankruptcy. On the eve of the 90th Oscar ceremony comes a new frontline documentary which looks at the powerful apparatus that enabled Weinstein to get away with sexual misconduct for years. He gripped my arm. And he started to massage my shoulders. In a forceful way. Stories with uncanny similarities. He came back in a robe, just like an open robe. If you were in his movie, you had a shot at an Academy Award. He used his non-disclosure agreements. It was a show of power. I think a lot of people turned a blind eye at And control. I think his career is over. But, you know, who knows? Anything can happen. 
Frontline's Weinstein airs tomorrow night. Talk about timing on WGBH2 at 9. Check your local PBS stations for a listing. Rainy Aronson is Frontline's executive producer. Congratulations yet again, Rainy. Good to see you. Nice. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, thank you. And tell people what you what you did in this uh, documentary. It's an hour long. see a lot of the survivors of Mr. Weinstein's reign of terror. So, I mean, Frontline decided, we decided in the fall, actually with our BBC partners at Panorama, to look at wine scene through a different angle. And the angle was an accountability one. So you do hear from the alleged victims, but you also hear about the people inside the companies going along the way, observing things, seeing things, not speaking up, and about the whole apparatus around Harvey Weinstein. Can I tell you, that part, I have quoted, Marjorie hates this because I quote it almost every day. Why not do it again? The Quentin Tarantino line, which you use here, Mm. we knew enough to have done more, I knew enough to have done more. If it was ever proven uh, uh, anywhere, it was proven in this documentary. Here's just one guy, this guy, Peter Webster, I'd never heard of before, obviously from the documentary, former head of production at Miramax Weinstein's company, on what it was like working with Harvey Weinstein. Working at Miramax was like being in a cult, the cult of Harvey. It was common knowledge. Everybody knew what a brutal regime it was. He worked beyond the limits of normal human beings. And, you know, Rainey, when you see the succession of women looking into the camera, telling their story, when you hear others in and around the industry talking about how the agents should have known, when you see, we'll talk about him in a minute, the great Kennel Letter from New York Magazine, I think, who had the story but couldn't get anybody on the record, it's clear that people are sitting in their offices today with the knowledge that had they said what they knew, I'm not just talking about survivors who are a whole other story, that this decades-long rape, sexual molestation, whatever, wouldn't have happened. That's a fair statement, isn't I, it? I think that's what we were after. We were after who knew what, when, who is in a position of power. It's not about the alleged victim speaking out. It's about people observing this alleged bad behavior. And what do they do about it? Do they speak up or do they stay silent? If you listen to Paul Webster... One Paul of the, Webster, I'm sorry. No problem. Peter, you know, it's okay. Webster's a great example of someone who says that he was well aware. And what struck me the most from the film is that he says... I didn't even think of speaking out about it. Now, the fact that the culture is so strongly adhering to silence was something that struck me very deeply. And this goes beyond Harvey Weinstein, in my mind, to a deeper truth about people in power. Well, I think it's not just a deeper truth about people in power. It's It's a deeper truth about the way... This has happened to millions of women in all mm-hmm. sorts of professions Absolutely. for decades, if not centuries. And it was just, this is the way it is. You don't like it, quit. And I think that's what is so wonderful about what you've done or the Me Too moment in general saying, no. No, this is not okay. So today I was thinking deeply about this as I watched the the output of the film that I think if there's one takeaway, the takeaway is... It is imperative on people who are inside structures, inside big companies, inside any companies, if they're seeing bad behavior, to speak up. And it is not the actual responsibility of victims to have to share their stories. Because it is remarkable that they are deciding to share their stories, but that's not the imperative here. The imperative is that people who are in positions of power speak up when they see bad behavior. You know, again, and speaking of these women, we're just going to play one. I think it's Catherine Kendall, who's one of the first women you see. And again, when they're staring into the camera, it is so much more 
powerful, nothing to take away from print media. But when you read about it, it's one thing. When you see them having the yes, courage very to talk and when you see the common threads through these stories, here's Ken- Catherine Kendall on her encounter with Harvey Weinstein. There was no suave moves or anything. Like there was just a really weird, awkward, will you give me a massage? I had to say just no. And I, I'm not comfortable. He left the room and he came back and he was just fully naked. I thought, Is he, he's coming after me. <sighs> um, I just remember sort of darting back and forth and trying to get past him. You know in that moment that you may not make it. That line... I could not, that line, you know in that moment, you may not make it. But then the line that she said after that where she said, I knew she was, what, 19 or 20? She was just starting out. She said she knew she would be squashed in her career, that she would have no career. So she didn't uh, say anything, which I thought uh, was was just so true. And also the modus operandi that you see, he he had a thing. Over and over. It was amazing because what she says is she shared it with people close to her likely, but she didn't share it with anyone who could help her. Right. So that is is what we saw decade after decade with the Harvey Weinstein story is that women were having these really alleged traumatizing moments, but they weren't sharing it with people who could have helped them. Instead, in some cases, obviously signing NDAs so that they really truly couldn't legally share. Non-disclosure agreements, paying them a set of money. So talk a little bit about that thing. That we, I guess we learned a little bit about it from uh, uh, Ronan Farrow uh, uh, in his Absolute, one of his pieces right. in the New Yorker, and he's in your film as well. Talk about that. Talk about the lawyers. Talk about K two. What was the infrastructure of the protect Harvey Weinstein at any cost thing like? Well, it was it was pretty aggressive from Harvey Weinstein's perspective. He says, uh, and he was in a lot of communication. His spokeswoman is communication with us often about. Yeah, this I want to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they really were in in touch with us about this. They say, and it's interesting to take their point of view for a moment, that these were not non-consensual incidents. So he says, it was within my right to have an infrastructure around me that protected me because, in fact, I'm innocent. Now, if you take the the victims, the alleged victims' point of view, they say that it was a very aggressive situation. The choice they were given was an NDA situation. And you hear Zelda Perkins tell it, I think, the best in the film where she really describes – the pressure that she and her former colleague felt when they were being presented with their options. It's interesting to think about a young woman being faced with lawyers in a situation like this with a character like a Harvey Weinstein and the aggressive nature of that. And so you can't quite live in their shoes, but you can imagine what that felt like. You know, I just want to finish this, this Zelda Perkins thing because yeah. she moved to Guatemala. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Guatemala. And then Ken Waleta, the, Ken Oletta, the, the, the reporter, long-term reporter for The New Yorker, gets a tip about Harvey Weinstein, calls her up in Guatemala apparently and she said she flipped out. Absolutely she said, taken how did aback. you find me? She was afraid she was going to get killed. And she was absolutely panicked because of the power of Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Ken Olet, I should have said Right, that. and you, her fear was still palpable as she was totally, sharing the story totally. with us on camera. So Ken is a, a colleague of ours, and I called him on the phone as we were launching this big effort. And I said, you know, what, what is the most important line that Frontline can take through this? What's the most important line of inquiry that we can take? And he said the silencing line. And he told me the story about Zelda Perkins. And he was just absolutely 
dramatic on the phone. So I said, first of all, that's a great moment for a film, right? So of course, we're going to go and get that. But secondly, the idea that he was able to track her down, but she couldn't share her story for the fear that she felt was something that's an important element of an NDA, right? And so in in a sense, you're signing away your ability to talk about something. Well, you know what you also get a great sense of, of his explosive temper, the kind of, he was a big guy, kind of a violent guy, a bully, as you point out over and over again. That, uh, and the most important person, one would argue, in the whole – to oh. the point where Meryl Streep in her acceptance speech refers to him as God, God. even though she has said subsequently, as your film uh, states, that she didn't know anything about right. anything. Right. right. You know, another story in here, Sean Young, I guess she was difficult to work with. She was a young actress and stuff like that. But I always wondered – what happened to her? You know, she may have been difficult to work too, with. I wondered too, by the she way. Was in that I didn't great know that. Kevin Costner right. film, Absolutely. No Way Out. And then she disappeared. Well, it may have been because she was difficult to work with, but it might have also been something else that you talk about in this. Right. We really don't know. Harvey Weinstein says, you know, absolutely not. But certainly from her perspective, she believes that that was that was the huge impact on her career. Yeah, she made fun of him, right. and that he made sure that she was never going to work again. One of the interesting things about this is when women pushed back what happened throughout the film. And so we always would include that. So if they even confronted him or what would happen. And a lot of times he would end up apologizing allegedly, right? So he would he would own it. And then in some cases he would even cry. What's that and woman's name? Zoe Brock? Zoe yes. Brock. What is right. Zoe Brock's? She's the classic example. What yes. does she say to uh, after he comes out, I think naked or just wearing a little the, towel the on his naked body? What she does she says, scream at him? Well, I can't say it on the radio. I know you can, we we but, do bleep it in but the, the film, gist but of she it. essentially says, put your clothes back on, you naughty boy. Yeah. And she screams this, according yeah. to her. Her telling of it is very dramatic. And he starts to cry. And what she said is very, it's a very great moment in the film where she says, you know, I'll never forget this as long as I live because he said, you don't like me because I'm fat. And the fact of that intimate moment being yeah. explored within the range of predatory alleged behavior is is something that you won't forget. We are talking to Rainey Aronson, who is the executive producer of Frontline. We're going to talk about another Frontline project in a minute, which we've talked about before on the show. But one other thing that you do, at least for me and maybe other people, were not in the same place I was – when this Weinstein thing broke in October, we all heard the infamous Seth MacFarlane line. Right. Where Seth MacFarlane said something when announcing nominees for some awards. These are the five women, I'm paraphrasing, you'll correct mm-hmm. me, who don't have to pretend like they're attracted to Harvey Weinstein anymore. Now, a lot of us thought it might have just been you know, coincidental because everybody sucks up to the boss and he's not that attractive. Well, it turns out you interviewed... A woman yes, a, a, who had an experience with explain that connection. So, Jessica, this is a great story. She says that she was in his hotel room. She was invited in, and he propositioned her. And she said, listen, Harvey, I'm married. And she said, aren't you married? And he said, well, yeah, but I have an arrangement. And she was like, all right, listen, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. But a really poignant moment is she closes the door of the hotel room and bursts into tears. You hear this time and time again from women. And then she shared it with Seth. Who's her buddy. Who's her friend. Good friend. He shared it the first time publicly that we can, that we see, you know, that we've Mm -hmm. reported on where it's said out loud, something about Harvey in that regard. 
And one last thing, because we want to get to the Academy Awards, of course. Thank you. Uh, there was there was a, a, a <laughs> moment she. in uh, the Weinstein documentary where uh, there was talk about a sliding scale oh. for sex yes. harassment Eric in Schneiderman. his contract. Now, what was that about, please? So we don't know everything about that right now. This is very new information. Mm-hmm. It's Eric Schneiderman. This is what he's he's going after, and he's going to be looking into and investigating mm-hmm. about the Harvey Weinstein Company. Okay. This well, is the New York no Attorney General. This yes. is the, yeah. But what you do state in the film is that when they, his contract was renewed, this is there already, that are, there was allegedly a provision that says in addition to your money, if you have one sexual harassment claim, your That's salary right. is assessed X dollars, which to me um, – this is me speaking, not you because you're much more careful and you should – I understand that – is proof that the people on the board knew exactly what he was doing or the provisions were not, they're not in my contract saying for one sexual harassment I lose $100. I mean, it's just, in any case, the one common thread between which we want to talk to you about to me and this fabulous Weinstein thing, which is going to air tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, Friday night at 9 o'clock, right before the Sunday night Oscars, is Cy Vance. Mm. Cy Vance had a case that to me, if I were a prosecutor, is the ultimate case this woman who uh, said she was assaulted or sexually molested or or come on to whatever it was, mm-hmm. harassed by Harvey Weinstein, not only is saying it, has tape, right. has sound from Harvey Weinstein acknowledging this theme that the day before or something he had groped her, etc. Why did Cy Vance, when it seems to me he had an ironclad case, what's his – he's the Manhattan DA. What's his argument as to why he didn't prosecute? Well, we included that case at length because we thought it was revealing. So first of all, we played the tape. The tape is is really the first time you hear Harvey himself saying mm-hmm. something about his alleged behavior. Um, Ambra collected that herself. She's a very brave young woman who did that. What happened to her is that her past in Italy was haunting her. And if you listen to Cy Vance, and he didn't talk to us directly, but he gave us a statement, he says that, in fact, her story was uh, unreliable at times. So he didn't feel she would be a good witness. But there was a tape so, with know, Weinstein's own I've voice. Learned, admitting he yeah. I've learned over learned time already? that unless you hear it go through an actual court case and you can understand all sides, to not be completely locked down on that. However, we did include it at length because we thought it was really revealing about what happened to a woman who shared her story. Right, and, and then finish the, the thought. And where did the dirt on her that away. went in the newspapers, how did it get there? Because of Harvey Absolutely. Weinstein's investigators. Exactly. She was herself. totally smeared. So now, the reason I mentioned Cy Vance is I, my opinion, again, not yours, he disgraced himself in the Harvey Weinstein case. I would argue he disgraced himself in at least one other case. Which is, I, I, I hate to pick favorites, you may not like this, my favorite of what you've done in recent times. That's fine with me. And it happens to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary. Thank you. Abacus, which is this beautiful, powerful story of the only bank in America that was prosecuted after... In, indicted, the, right. Indicted after the, the, the economic collapse. That I think it was the 2,651st biggest bank in America. Right. Is that right? God, you got I, that right. No, I watch this many times. I memorized it. <laughs> Tell us about that family, if you can, that owned so the bank. It, it's, a, it's a great story, and it, it's truly one that's driven by powerful women uh, under it, right, inside the bank, you know? Um, but it's a Chinese-American bank. It's one of the smallest banks in America, only bank to have been indicted after the 2008 mortgage crisis, um, which in and of itself was something that we paid attention to with all our economic mm. reporting. So usually, you know, we don't, we don't do stories about banks that turn out positive for the bank, right? We're investigative reporters. In this case, we watched how through a multiple year 
court case how, in fact, they had been targeted unfairly. Um, in the, and it was decided by the jury that they were innocent and they were let off. But had spent millions. Absolutely. Devastated the family. The mother, the matriarch, the patriarch, the father who had started the bank, the daughters, all of whom worked with the father. Right. I mean, in, in this sense, one of the greatest parts of the film is that the daughters were, were lawyers. I know. One of the daughters was, in fact, inside the DA's office. For these Vance were, had been. Exactly. And she left, obviously. But, you know, these women really came to the bank's side and their father's side and they fought and they were completely methodical in how they were able to argue their case. People can watch, I assume this is on WGBH News. WGBH has it. It's free. It's streaming. We're going to let you, you can watch it and see where uh, Cy Vance, uh, if you find credible the reasons why they arguably did not single this family out based on race or low-hanging fruit or whatever. But Marjorie wants to talk about something much more well, important. Uh, Rainey Aronson, of course, she's the executive producer of Frontline. We've been talking about the two great Frontline productions here, the Harvey Weinstein and the Abacus, which she's going to the Oscars for. So what is your game plan Can't believe for going to the Oscars. Oscar <laughs> afternoon? I mean, do you, do you go to parties in the morning? When do you get your dress on? Party what start? kind of dress? Let me just be honest. Okay. So because I run all of Frontline, I have to get Weinstein on the air, and that goes Friday night. So oh. I'm not joking, but we're oh. working on that into the afternoon tomorrow. We're going to be feeding it into the PBS system tomorrow night. However, I'll be in L.A. Saturday morning. Parties start Saturday afternoon and go all the way essentially until the afternoon that is the Academy Award. Oh so it's going to be a big celebration of the director, Steve James, who's never been nominated for a director um, By the way, he did know, Hoop We had him on. He, he did, did Hoop, Hoop Dreams, Dreams, which is brilliant. He's a big oh, hero of mine. He's the reason I'm in documentary films, Steve so? James. Oh, I That's didn't know right. that. So, so he's so, a big influence on a lot of us so who are filmmakers. So can you name drop a little bit, too? I mean, any particular places that parties that stand well, out? Well, they're yet to be determined. Oh, yet to be determined. Okay. You get, so a swag, you get a swag bag, right? You know what? Not me, but Steve will. I mean, oh, let him share. The producer was not nominated. Steve James was, but he'll get the swag bag. Now, do you have a dress? I have up? a really lovely dress. You I'll, do? Uh, I have to say, we agonized over it, but I figured it out in the end. Okay. Oh but it's, you agonize it out with yourself or your girlfriends? Or My girlfriends. You... I have a team of... Fierce, protective, totally stylish <laughs> women at my Great. side, and they help me out. And do you do your own makeup and hair? No, you... actually, we have people coming in. They do That's my makeup. Wonderful. They do our hair, the whole thing. I've never been asked this on air before. Thank you. <laughs> Believe me, this is what we <laughs> We're really having care like a about woman moment. <laughs> so, so, and, and have you been to the Academy Awards before? I've never been. Because you do wonder how close you get to people. I know they put the people that are like best actor nominees in the front row and stuff, but yes. you do get to, you do, to you, up you're close, close and personal. So, yeah. I, I have a couple of friends who produced the Oscar. So, of course, I called them. In fact, one of them is just Jeff Rosica, who's the president of Avid. So I talked to him the other night and I said, hey, what's your best advice? So this is what he said, having produced it for years. He said, when you're on the red carpet, just be there. Just actually for 30 seconds, allow yourself to stand on that carpet and look around. And if you can do that, like then you'll be you'll be forever. You'll never forget that moment. Can I tell you something? I'm going to admit something that I admitted on the air before. Unlike Marjorie, I actually watched the red carpet oh, before you do? all the. Oh my god! Well, watch I E. It. I will be watching it's the whole carpet. Believe me, I knew that already, Randy. But thank you. I, knew that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you, your dream was to be on the red carpet. Well, Jim. someday, Jim. You never know. You, you never, never know. know. You never know. 
You know, Randy, congratulate. Weinstein is great. People will see it tomorrow night. And Abacus is one of my favorites yeah. ever. Thank you. And I hope you have a great time and win an Oscar. Thank you very much. It's so exciting. Wouldn't you love to have the Oscar come back here at WGB? You can hold it in your hand. We will come. If we win, we will bring it by. Thank you. That's wonderful. Great to see you, Randy. executive producer of Frontline. Their latest documentary, Weinstein, airs tomorrow night at WGBH2 at 9 o'clock on WGBH2, I should say, at 9 o'clock. If you're outside the greater Boston area, check your local PPS, I'm goofing this up, PBS station for listings. Randy, thank you very much. Thank you. Good luck. Up next, the Boston Globe's kind of expector Clouseau, Sean Murphy, is going to join us. He's part journalist, part, part corporate watchdog. He joins us to talk about Amazon's mystery deliveries and other abuses at the hands of big business. Sean Murphy is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Well, now that Mick Mulvaney has single-handedly gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, all we can say is thank God for Sean Murphy. Sean is a Boston Globe reporter, the man behind the fine print column, which takes on some of the toughest consumer predicaments and solves them from mystery Amazon deliveries to, well, a whole haunch of things. He joins us to go over some of the most interesting cases. Sean, it's great to see you. Hi, Jim. Now, here's how we decided to do this because we have so many favorites. Marjorie and I decided we would each pick our favorite so far. You describe it. You got to talk into the mic. Okay. After which you could pick your favorite (laughs) and we'd go from uh, from, uh, there. Well, first, first, just just tell people what you're doing, though. You are... This is a column. It's been introduced to the Globe and June. It's called The Fine Print. Uh, I'm the author, and every week I take on a new subject, a subject generated by readers uh, Mm -hmm. who send email to me and say, I have a problem and I want some help. Uh, And typically, the problem involves a big corporation or a law firm or a retailer or a utility. And I take up the cause for the Wee little one who needs a little I love help. It. Or, okay. I love it. Or a cruise line. Now, here's my pick. My favorite. Yeah. I love Bernie and Dolly Bernie Wax. And Dolly. I loved them even before I heard about their problem, <laughs> even though I didn't know you, them. You don't have to go further than their names. <laughs> Bernie and, exactly. and Dolly. Dolly. Yeah. Tell us what happened to them and then what happened uh, to them. This that is a lovely it. couple, elderly couple from Brookline, uh, uh, married for 50 years, 50 plus years. I think it was 64, 60, but who's thank counting? You. Uh, it's your column. And, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so they decide that they're going to go on a cruise uh, the west coast, uh, or the coast of uh, Mexico, the west coast of Mexico. Uh, and they think it's going to be their last cruise. Uh, they're getting on in years. Health issues are, are piling up. They book the uh, uh, cruise. They arrive in L.A. Uh, at the uh, terminal. And in the hustle and bustle, somebody grabs their luggage and puts it on a cart to take on the ship. Uh, and Bernie then realizes, wait a minute, the passports are in my luggage. <coughs> he stands in line, gets to the counter. They ask for the passports. He says, well, they're in the luggage. They said, oh, don't worry. Sit down. you got three hours before the ship leaves. We'll find them. They don't. Uh, and at the last moment, somebody s- steps out, hands him a, a form letter saying, you know, uh, you're out of luck, pal, basically. Uh, and, and that's it. Uh, he calls. Boat sails off. The cruise, uh, the cruise he's, ship he's sails off. He's got tears in his eyes as he sees the ship uh, on the beautiful blue Pacific Ocean. His, you know, bride of 64 years next to him. 
Uh, and he's he's got a 1-800 number to call. He does. It's 5 o'clock West Coast time, 6 maybe. Uh, and uh, there's no answer in Miami. Uh, and there won't be an answer for the next three days because it's the Christmas uh, weekend. Wasn't his medicine in the suitcase? His medicine, well? his toiletries, his yeah. clothes, everything he owned. And so he's standing out there in this deserted terminal, uh, three thousand ways, three thousand miles away from home, not knowing what to do. And correct me if I'm wrong. Not only did they not get to go on that cruise, and not only did they not get their luggage back right away, but it, the first thing they tried was just to get a refund, the twenty three hundred bucks or something. Well, uh, luckily, uh, Bernie and Dolly had a. Uh, granddaughter in L.A., rescued them. Uh, they wound up having a good time with family. But he wanted a refund. Uh, and he Understandably. Wrote, understandably, and he wrote a nice, polite, but firm letter, and they rejected it. So uh, then you enter the fray. So then they got in touch with me, and uh, so, uh, you know, I been around a little bit. I could recognize this as a pretty good story, you know, with some sympathetic <laughs> characters, right? <laughs> and... Uh, so I call Norwegian uh, and say, you know, I'm Sean, and you know, this is what, what I'm doing, and they don't uh, they don't get back to me. But for the first time, they communicate with Bernie, and they say, sorry, the rules are the rules. You didn't have your documents in order. You lose. No money. No refund. How okay? nasty <laughs> is that? Well, how uh, tone deaf? How really, stupid? You know? Exactly. How stupid? You know, so they're running a business. You know. Okay, so then what happens? So. Uh, I write the story, we play it on page one, and, uh, you know, everybody goes crazy. I got uh, 350 emails the first wow. day, you know, from people, almost all of them just saying, uh, oh, I feel so bad for this couple, you know, uh, how can this be? Uh, and I'm never going to use the cruise line again, <laughs> I read. <laughs> well, no, say. actually, they were starting to write into Norwegian directly. Right. Uh and so that was a Sunday, and about noon, uh, I'm just sort of going through my emails as with my wife and daughter out somewhere, and, and there's an email from Norwegian saying, hey, we basically, uncle, we give up. You know, we'll give them everything. And then they went and they said, uh, not only will we refund the money, we'll give them a free dream cruise to wherever they want to go in the best, most luxurious accommodations and $500 spending money. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Did they go? Uh, they're ready to go. They got the refund, uh, and they're they're you know they're picking out where they're going to go. So that okay. was my favorite. That that was that was uh, Jim's favorite. My favorite. You heard a lot about people getting unexpected packages from Amazon, but the yeah. one that really freaked me out were the young women. Uh, one of them, who, they were getting sex, sex toys. Yes. One of them got a bra in her size. Which made me think like somebody was like stalking her or something. Tell us about this. Well, this started with. Um, uh, a tip from a, a couple in Acton. They said they'd, they'd gotten 25 packages from Amazon. They couldn't explain it. I went out and sat with them, another lovely couple, and, uh, you know, wrote the story. Uh, and Amazon is kind of, you know, uh, being vague and unhelpful and what's going on. But I had a theory about a, a whole a gambit to uh, essentially boost sales by propping up uh, reviews. Uh, and so that story goes, it gets a lot of response, but then... In the, Propping up reviews by creating essentially phony emails. Phony emails, phony uh, uh, Amazon accounts, uh, phony persona, 
uh, a delivery to anybody doesn't really matter because uh, Amazon counts actual deliveries, actual payments to protect their you know veracity. And using gift cards because they're untraceable cards, and anonymous. Right? Yep. Uh, and then they have the uh, option to write a review, five stars, greatest thing ever. I've seen them. Uh, it's a little scam. Uh, that's one thing. That's uh, in the immediate uh, hours after that story went, uh, I've, I've barraged with emails, including one from a woman on the West Coast who said, uh, "I'm same things happening to me, but it's a lot more personal. It started with jewelry, uh, and then bras in my size, and then it got a lot worse." Uh, and uh, and she wasn't the only one. Uh, it's surprising to me, out of the forty odd people I've spoken to that have had this experience. Maybe twenty percent uh, have uh, sex toys or toys or lingerie or. And as so, you wrote, by the way, the first set that Acton couple that's aggravating. Yeah, uh, that's creepy and aggravating. The second one is, as the women said to you, is scary. Yeah. So what was going on? Did you were able to ascertain that? Uh, I don't. Uh, I can't say for sure. Uh, there's two. You know, is it somebody using Amazon to stalk an ex-girlfriend or somebody that they're angry at? Uh, a- Amazon says no. Uh, the people who are receiving these things still feel like uh, something may be going on. Uh, it's w- well within the realm of possibility that uh, these products, are just like anyone else, anything else, that they, they can be boosted uh, through this same kind of scam. You know, you know I just sorry. want to point out here. We're talking yeah. about Sean Murphy, by the way. Thank God for Sean Murphy and the Boston Globe because the Consumer right, Product Martha. Safety Commission has just been basically shut down by the Trump administration. So the only place left to go, Sean, is well, you. No, People should be aware yeah. of that. Thank no, but, you. No, but I, and the Attorney General's office and whatever. But I want to, that's exactly the point I was going to make. I mean, the other story that I can't get out of my mind was the woman who wrote a check for her long-term care. She had the proper amount, 3000 and something yeah. in words, but the number was off by $98. Yeah. Obviously, the woman intended to pay the whole damn right. bill, yeah. and by, as evidenced by the fact that she wrote the right words, but technically uh, uh, it was rejected. They canceled her insurance, and once again, you came, and this one was resolved in her favor. Yeah. The thing, my takeaway from all these, and there are dozens of these you've worked on so far, is what Marjorie said. I don't, Focus just on the people you've been able to help. My thought is on the thousands of people that you don't have the person power to help. There got to be a million Dolly and Bernie waxes, or this long-term care woman. Are you not thinking about yeah. that, couple, that all the time? Well, I guess you call that thousand-dollar bill from Eversource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's asymmetrical, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, when we're dealing with these corporations, they're huge and they're somewhat unfeeling. I suppose they have rules. They tell all their people. This is what you do. When somebody calls in complaining about something like you, you just brush them off, essentially. Uh, and it's only when it gets uh, widely circulated uh, in a major newspaper and website that, you know, results come along. But there's an injustice in that. It's fabulous you do what you do. It just seems, uh, I, as I say, I think, and I'm sure you do too, about all the people. You can't. There's only so many pieces you write. There are only so many. Well, I suppose there's a deterrent effect too. I mean, well, that's I think a good point. That's a, a good point. Norwegian uh, might be rethinking their strategy at this point. Great point. Uh, I, I know they are. You and- know, he, here's another great one. This was. It's a small thing in some ways, but not when you're 85 years old and you oh, get yeah, groceries water, yeah. and a dog. Yeah. Tell us about the elevator that broke Doris, down. Doris. Uh, Doris. Lovely, another lovely Doris person. Doris Tui. Yeah, I, I spoke to her this morning. Uh, she uh, has lived for decades in a condo building in Brighton. Uh, over the years, the condo association uh, let the place fall into disrepair, and the elevator uh, was shot. 
So in August, uh, it busted and couldn't be used, and the people came in and said it'll be six months. Six months. Six months. She's and 85. She's on, and she's 85 on the sixth floor, uh, and, you know, it'd take her uh, half an hour to get up. Uh, and so uh, the Buffett Foundation, you may know, uh, stepped in, heard about it, and said, uh, we will pay for her uh, to live in uh, at guest suites in really? Watertown. Yeah, and she's been there since uh, mid-November. For free until for free. the thing. Well, I mean, yeah. hey, Buffett Foundation. <laughs> I think they can afford it. By the way, you someone, a did, dollar tax break, someone did a package on this for Greater Boston. I think it was Christina Quinn. It's the niece, right, uh, who I think lives in Cambridge of Warren Buffett, yeah. who runs the foundation. Uh, no, it's a sister. Sister, okay, somebody, yeah. some relative, and they get all these requests. And yeah, then, the Letters Foundation. Yeah. yeah, and you can't email them. I know that, by yeah. the way. you got to send them a... a uh, uh, a note. So she got. You spoke yeah, to her this morning. You know, she's still waiting. You know, it's it's over six months now, uh, and there's delays and delays. Uh, it's unconscionable. And the poor woman and her lovely Yorkie dog Bonnie want to get home. Listen yeah. to you. Yeah. So do these? Sean, I got to know you, these people. You know. Sean, you go to Catholic school. I did not. I was going to say, not a day did, of it, the but, nuns would yeah. be so proud I, of you doing well, this work now. Yeah, although I, sometimes I, I I wanted to share with you a, an email I did get. About, oh, please do. Uh, this is somebody. Uh, I wrote about uh, this person who uh, got a, a, a bill for $25,000 for Eversource. Oh, we read uh, that one. He's an immigrant from Taiwan, a CPA, and so on. Uh, and I kind of championed his cause, saying if Eversource can't produce the documentation behind it, you know, he shouldn't have to pay that amount of money. They uh, haven't billed him for years and years and years. They hadn't billed him. It was Eversource's mistake not to bill him. He thought he was being paid, paying the electricity through his condo fee of $400 a month. So, you know, they're in a tussle now. Uh, and I took his side, and I got an email that said, Sean, you're the most pathetic consumer advocate I've encountered in my lifetime. <laughs> you advocate for slimy, cunning con artists who steal electricity and then pretend to be ignorant uh, uh, immigrants. Uh, and she was also upset with me, this author, this writer, about uh, championing a blind person, a blind woman. Really? Who felt like uh, she was uh, let down by a travel company when denied uh, uh, access to a tour to Vietnam because of her blindness, total blind since birth. You uh, know who that wrote that email? President of Norwegian Cruise Lines. <laughs> no, that's a joke. That's we a don't want anybody sued. That was a joke. Yeah. Sean, <laughs> Sean, I, I, well, I, I... How do people... I mean, by the way, if people... Uh, and Sean, I assume there are tons S-E-A-N, of... S-E-A-N, Murphy at Globe.com. How many do you get a day? Uh, it's not overwhelming. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, you know... Two or three, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you get a text or even a telephone call in this day and age. Uh, it's a nice uh, trickle. One thing I need from people is that I've got to use you, your name and your photograph uh, and your circumstance. Some people don't want to, you know, give yeah, up their like privacy. Yeah, like a lottery check kind of deal. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, Sean, Sean I, th- we I love think it's this, great stuff. I, I love every one of these stories. And I love that these people get their comeuppance for trying to yeah. shaft, you know, people have been married for 50 years and they're, or 60 years, whatever it is. Can you tell Sh- Bernie and Dolly when you talk to them, I love them? Will you yeah. Yeah. Oh, everybody them? loves them. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, and I will tell them you specifically. And Doris Thank you. Well. Doris Sean Murphy's a reporter for the Boston. Boston Globe okay, and the man behind you. the consumer com, the fine print. Thank you very thank you much, very Sean. Much, everyone. Up next, we're going to talk to Congressman Mike Capuano about where Congress is or is not on gun reform. Congressman Capuano is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. It's time for another edition of A Look Behind the Curtain. It's Congressman Michael Capuano's running list of government actions that aren't getting serious media coverage but do have serious consequences. Congressman, good to talk to you. Um, it's always good to begin anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, There's let's try one to... honest man in the crowd. I think I'm going to ruin the mood <laughs> almost immediately, Congressman, because I, I was very hopeful yesterday watching the president and other senators talking yeah. about some significant uh, gun reform. We spoke with uh, Chuck Todd from uh, Meet the Press earlier today. He said he thought it was all theater. It was going to be DACA Part 2 where the president um, says he's going to do something and then doesn't do something. But I don't know. I mean, do you have any hope or am I just being ridiculous? A little bit of both. I mean, hope springs eternal, doesn't it? I yeah. Mean, I, his words were better than anything I've heard him say in a long time. But uh, Mr. Todd was right. Uh, we've heard this before on immigration. Um, I hope this time is different. I, I think these kids in Florida are doing a great job. Uh, we just had some uh, young people in Somerville uh, try to follow the elite. Yes, yeah. trying it was to great. Spread it around the country. I, I think that's the best way to get it done. Um, if we can get young people all around the country excited about this and committed to it more than a week or so, um, I, I think we do have a chance. You know, speaking of the Somerville kids, which we're going to get to later, for those that don't know, they walked out of about 200 of them walked out of school yesterday uh, about gun control issues. And I believe their their position is until there is meaningful gun reform. And obviously everybody defines that differently. They're going to keep walking out on Wednesdays. Are you you're the former mayor of Somerville, for those who don't uh, recall. Are, are, Are you okay with that? Um, I have a little problem with it every week, uh, but I certainly there are other ways to express your commitment than, than skipping classes. I mean, once was a, was a good thing. After that, I'll leave that to the school committee and the school department to decide what they think is an appropriate way to work with these young people. They were, I met with them yesterday. They seem sincere. They they seem genuine. They seem committed. Um, so my hope and expectation is that they understand that education comes first and um, commitment to social issues is right after that. So I, I think you can do both. I don't think you have to necessarily walk out of school every week to prove your commitment. And I, and I hope that they find other ways to express themselves. You know, can I use your three adjectives uh, to describe them? Let's assume that Be the pre- <laughs> let's assume the president was sincere, genuine, and committed. Is I guess the three of us yeah. and others hope. He was yesterday in that White House uh, meeting. Uh, Paul Ryan has said, the Speaker of the House has said, it's not about guns. It's about whoever owns the guns. Uh, uh, Steve Scalise, one of the leading Republicans who everybody knows was shot, said after when he was recovering that it just reaffirmed his pro-gun uh, stance. And I could just go on and on down the list here. Is there Are there enough Republicans, if the president were sincere and chose to work on this, who could be peeled off to deal with, obviously, the vast majority of Democrats to get something serious done? I think the answer is yes, but then they would have to stand up to their own leadership. Uh, they would have to stand against their leadership. For instance, Brian Mast out of Florida, he's a yeah. double amputee war hero. Um, he's been pretty clear about some of his positions. So I mean, he's, he By the way, he said he supports an assault weapon yes. ban outright. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And talk I about a credible uh, person yeah. to be speaking out. Very much so. And I'm just using him as an example. There are many other people there that I think if they vote with their conscience and and they have the courage of their own conscience, we can do this. But that will not just require them to speak out. It will require them to, I assume respectfully, but strongly and firmly disagree with their own leadership. They say, look, I I like Paul Ryan, but on this issue, I can't stand with him, and I have to do other things. If if that can happen, and a guy like Brian Mass can do it, um, then yes, we can get some meaningful reform over the objections of the Republican leadership. 
You know, I want to focus on one specific thing. Speaking of Scalise, I believe it was Scalise who the uh, Congressman Scalise, who the president was speaking to when he said, you don't have the votes on that that concealed carry reciprocity thing. As we learned, much to our surprise, because neither Marjorie nor I knew it when it actually was happened, is the House had voted, yeah, we'll do background checks, but we'll tie background checks to uh, concealed carry, which is not only horrible in general, but particularly horrible for a state like Massachusetts, which has tough country. Anybody who can carry a gun concealed in Montana could then come to Massachusetts and do the same thing. Regardless of our laws. Our laws would not matter. So does Trump's position on that issue, again, if it's sincere, have the, the, the power to cause that to be peeled off the Republican agenda? Again, the sincerity is a question that I can't measure and, and his commitment to it. Uh, he'll have to stand there. He'll have to make deals with some Republicans. He'll have to encourage them. He'll have to talk to them. He'll have to protect them politically. The NRA has not stood with the president on this. Um, so the question is, is he willing to use his political um, cachet to stand with Republicans who have the courage to stand against the majority of the Republican elected officials? Um, and I, if he's willing to do that, he will show me something that I have not yet seen in this president, um, and he will earn my respect on this issue. I mean, again, words are cheap. But let's see what he's willing to do to get it done. Well, uh, we're talking with Congressman Michael Capuano. Congressman, when I get discouraged with, with Congress, uh, which I often do, I've been. Uh, you think about Jared Kushner, and that reaffirms no, no, your commitment to, to government. Before we get to Jared Kushner, I just want to ask you a quick thing about uh, what these corporations are doing. Dick Sporting's Goods no longer going to sell assault wife, uh, rifles. Walmart raising the age to buy them to twenty-one. The rental car companies and Best Western, United Delta, et cetera, are no longer giving special deals to NRA members. What do you think about that avenue? Uh, just, I think it's great. I mean, again, you know, I I like to hold corporations to to a moral standard that we all have. Um, They can only do what they can do. I mean, they can't change the laws. But uh, these corporations that are finally standing up and and being counted within their limitations, uh, I respect them. I I give them all due respect. But I guess what I'm saying is it does it impact – you know, it reminds me a little bit about mothers against drunk driving when the idea became that – Driving drunk was not a joke and something to tell people about the water cooler. You were a bad person. You were shamed. It was awful. Which is not what it was like when we were young, by the way. No, absolutely not. And if the same thing could be beginning to happen, that uh, uh, if you are paying dues to the NRA – you're a bad person. You can't say, "Oh, I'm paying dues, but I don't. I don't think. I, we, I think we shouldn't let terrorists get guns." But I'm paying my dues anyway. That supporting this institution makes you a bad person. I, I think it could be the beginning of it. But again, these things have to go more than a week or two. They have to last. They have to be committed. Um, we corporations finally, one step at a time, took the right position on South Africa apartheid. Yeah, they've done it before on other issues, but it doesn't happen overnight. It has to be a long-term, committed position of people like us pushing them to do the right thing. And when they don't, shaming them to the best of our abilities. And when they do, I think they deserve our respect and public support for taking the right action. So, look, I've had my problems with some of the biggest corporations in this country over the years on many things. On this one, for these corporations, I I give them the respect I think they have earned by this action. We're talking to uh, Congressman Michael Capuano. I mentioned uh, Jared Kushner before. It's really hard to rank, uh, at least for me, the level of shock I feel when I see particularly stories coming out of Washington when last night the New York Times posted this story about him meeting in the uh, uh, in the White House with uh, the head of some Apollo financing group and with the Citigroup guy, and then lo and behold, totally by coincidence, he got a half billion dollars 
325 million from one, 180 million from the other to loans for his troubled, financially troubled real estate businesses, Kusher Enterprises, whatever the company is called. I was stunned by how in your face this thing is. Now, in all fairness, since we try to be, Kushner, the White House says nothing to do with each other. The head guy, head of Citigroup and the head of Apollo said, I wasn't even involved in the decision. But what was your reaction to this incredible story? Same as it just every day I wake up and I get stunned by by another action that they take, Um, even if it was completely arm's length. It still smells, and everybody knows it, and it's never been done before. I would say never. Not in modern times has anything like this been done. And, and, and it's just stunning to me that they think that it's just business as usual. This is why we have laws about families being involved uh, on the payroll in government. Look, I love my family deeply. I trust them more than I trust anybody, but none of them are on my payroll. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Congressman Capuano, before we get to the look behind the curtain, you are uh, uh, you're Mr. Transportation on a lot of issues. Obviously, you were one of the key people, if not the key member of Congress, getting the billion dollars from the feds for the extension of the Green Line. But Marjorie and I were talking yesterday in the wake of the announcement that there are 2,000 new Amazon jobs coming to Seaport where the transportation is not so great to begin with, public transportation. In the last week, uh, Marjorie was saying yesterday the red line's on fire every day. It's not on fire every day. It was on fire one day. Commuter rail is, I think it's fair to say, more often than not a disaster. Yep. There have been green line problems. We talked to Barry Bluestone months ago before he got in a little bit of hot water about his comment about the president's health, who did this report on how we are just years away from total gridlock on the roads if the number of cars increases. We learned that uh, ride-sharing Uber and Lyft are not are taking away people from mass transit and adding more cars right. to the road. Just like are you can you... outrun the Green Line now. Yes. Pretty soon you'll be able to outrun the cars <laughs> on the Southeast Expressway. Right, coming in from the Cape. Exactly. So are you not worried about the, the – and we also dropped from first to eighth – in this U.S. news ranking, which they say was mostly because our infrastructure ranking dropped to almost the bottom, uh, even though it's imprecise. We know that. Are you worried about our inability to have the infrastructure keep up with the rapid pace of job creation in this area? Deeply worried. And and, and, and the answer is yes, every day. And by the way, on that ranking, we're still number one in urban states. I mean, if you want to live in a rural state... Mm -hmm. That's fine, but okay. on urban states, we're still number one. But not on not yeah. on infrastructure. We're not. You mean overall? No, 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 right, no, yeah. no. Okay. Overall, yes. And, and I couldn't agree more. Look, look, this is why I fought so hard for the FAMAR line. This is why I fought so hard for the for the Green Line. Uh, that's why I fought so hard for the Silver Line and the extension of the Silver Line. We've done it several times now since I've been in office, and I, I think all of those things are necessary. I've had real concerns over some people that think that uh, Uber and Lyft are the final answer to everything. And again, they're fine. I use their services on occasion. Uh, but they are not the final answer to com- daily commuting for most people. And, and all that being said, I, I really l- would love to see this state jump to the fore on, on alternative methods of transportation. Um, we have Obviously, we have people now talking about a gondolas in downtown Boston. I don't know if that's going to help or not, but it's really worth looking at. I had a meeting yesterday with a, with a, with a city council from Chelsea who has an idea of, uh, of taking the, the Tobin Bridge and adding something underneath it for a bikeway and a walk. I think that's a great idea that needs to be uh, reviewed. And again, there are many other people with ideas that that I would never be able to come up with. And I think every one of them has to be fully and totally explored. 
uh, in Cambridge. There's, a, there's discussion on what's called the Grand Junction Line. It's a small little single track line putting some sort of a, of a bikeway and a commuter pathway uh, for, for, to move people from, from Alston over to, uh, to Leachmere. Again, there are dozens of these things on the, on the table. And then on top of that, we absolutely positively must take our system that we have now and make it the best in the world. I know it's a big investment, but without that investment, it's going to hurt our economy in the short term and in the long term. Where's that? Excuse me, but I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree with what you're saying. We learned from the infrastructure proposal of the president. He doesn't think the federal government has more than a nickel and dime role anymore. We have uh, the governor's position is we don't need new revenue to to uh, fix what ails or roads and bridges. So uh, these small projects you're mentioning are all exciting. Where's the serious money emails, to do the serious thing? We get emails all the time from people who don't. What's that? Both those positions are wrong. We absolutely need new revenue. And when you ask the general public, I don't care how you ask them, if they're willing to increase their expenditures for, for good transportation, they will say yes. And that will be a gas tax or a mileage tax or anything you want to do. People are willing to pay for these transportation projects as long as they know what they're paying for. They're not willing to just throw it at the, at the table and trust everybody else to do it. But when you go to them and say, here's the project, here's what we're going to do to fund it, and, here, and here's what we need to do. It's got to be a project that services everybody, or, or several projects that service everybody, people will support it. Uh, and if they don't, well, then we have nobody to blame for it. Didn't the president support a gas tax for a minute, like a he week ago? He did, and again, that goes right back to the very first thing we talked about. He has said that. only a minute? Uh, words are cheap, and, and he hasn't said it again, so we'll see. We're talking okay. to Mike Capuano. Well, let's get to uh, look behind <laughs> More upbeat the, topics. The curtain. You know, this one I just can't believe. We, it, it, everybody was in a panic when we found out that Equifax had, uh, you know, breached, oh, yeah. what was it, 145 million consumers' uh, data. Half of America. Yeah, half of America. We were all rushing to see if we were breached, what we could do about it. Consumer Finance Protection Bureau stepped in to do something about it. Now, as you report and look behind the curtain, They've stopped the investigation. Of course they did. This is exactly what the Trump administration does, and this is a classic example of behind the curtain. Under the prior administration, yes, sometimes justice takes some time, but the CFPB, uh, headed by Mr. Cordray at the time, started doing what they needed to do, which would get facts and, and, and substantiate themselves and chase Equifax to make sure that they were punished for their actions and to make sure that to the best of their ability it never happened again. Well, Mr. Cordray left. Um, Mr. President Trump appointed his good friend, Mr. Mick Mulvaney, to run the agency, and he has done exactly what people thought the Trump administration was do. He didn't come with a big announcement. He just simply killed the investigation. It's over. So now Equifax, having done what they did, has nothing to pay for it, and there will be no regulations coming out of this administration that will prevent it from happening again tomorrow. You know, I, I get the, 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 the Republicans' idea that there are too many regulations and there are too many strictures oh, against businesses, but I, I, I don't understand this one, because this is such a black and white case of really shafting people. Yep. I and, mean, and, and, and something that didn't have to happen. People forget these agencies that do our credit rate, credit ratings, they don't we don't they don't work for us. We don't right. buy their services. They work for big corporations. We are victims. They take our information 
and then they sell it. They take our information without paying us and sell it to big corporations that can then say no to loans or whatever they want to say no to. Um, and on, in this particular case, the information that they took from me without my approval, without paying me, um, and then they basically just let anybody who wanted to steal it because they didn't care. They don't. They, there's no liability on the issue, um, and it's just stunning. But it, you wonder if it, if it's if it's the regulation thing or if it's the fact that this was a, Senator Elizabeth Warren's baby. She didn't get to be ahead of it because people didn't want her. I guess all, that that may be the agency, and that's all well and yeah. good. That's fine. I think she's been she's fine since being a United States senator. Um, but that's not the point. The point is it, it is we have the agency, whether you like it or not. And the question is, do you or do you not? Stay with consumers, and particularly in this case, consumers who have been clearly wronged. And when you don't stand with them, I think this says a lot about you. And in this particular case, it was a classic example of why we started behind the curtain. This, this is the kind of thing we all screamed, we all yelled, America was jumping up and down about this. And now quietly, almost a year later, they just kind of, well, no big deal, we've dropped the case. Uh, by the way, when you, when you said a minute ago, she's fine now that she's a senator, what does that mean? That means that, you know, she didn't get to be the head of the CFPB, which I think she would have been great at. Oh, okay. But I think it turned out she's okay. landed she's on her feet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Congressman, the uh, uh, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, I'm not surprised, I'm troubled, has removed the phrase, according to your look behind the curtain, nation of immigrants from its mission statement. I think it's pretty obvious why they're doing it, even though it does trouble me. But they're also removing the word customers. Uh, uh <laughs> from their their lingo or their language what is that about i mean what's the message they're trying to send with that this is political speak i mean i think the idea of customers when you hear a customer uh, companies entities try to please customers oh, I see. Okay. for the customer in this particular case they're not there for the people they deal with they're there to, for some other reason i don't know maybe they should be the uh, the trump administration just they're there to please the trumps i don't know do you talk you know, to before we leave this? When do you talk to staffers in your work from place? I mean, yesterday, obviously, uh, the president attacked not just Jeff Sessions but the whole Justice Department. Uh, people I assume are lifers at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service too. Right. When you speak to careerists who are not, you know, hardcore Republicans or Democrats, at least in their public life, what's their morale like? What, what are terrible? Across the board. It's not just in the immigration service. It's in the IRS. It's across the board. The average rank-and-file federal employee right now is completely demoralized. The IRS is being uh, eaten from the inside out. Social Security and Medicare are being – I dare anybody to get on the phone and try to find a Social Security worker. uh, or They'll find them, but they're going to have to wait a much longer time to get them. Again, they're being hollowed out. And, and, and this is, a, again, another classic example of what the Trump administration is doing. It's across the board. And it, it's in, like, most people, they won't see it. They won't rent, notice it until they need a question answered on their Social Security or their Medicare or their Medicaid or their taxes. They won't be able to find any or they'll have a much harder time finding somebody to answer those questions than they used to have. You know, just one thing about the immigration, the change in, in wording. This is how it used to read. And I think this is a really touching way they phrased it, that U.S citizenship and immigration services uh, secures America's promise as a nation of immigrants. And then it goes on from there. Mm. And and now it's talking about, and I hate this phrase, securing the homeland. It reminds me of the Nazis. I don't know why we have to talk about the homeland here. But anyway, it, it takes the whole, and millions of us, of course, are, you know, immigrants, children or grandchildren or whatever. It takes that whole 
beautiful Statue of Liberty thing out of the whole deal. It's stunning. Everybody I know uh, pretty much uh, is very proud of their ethnicity and very proud of the fact that you know their ancestors came here, some of whom came involuntarily, but they came here. They're very proud to be here. They don't want to be anyplace else. But that doesn't mean they want to ignore their family history or, or, the, or the troubles that their ancestors had. And that, to me, is what this does. Uh, and I don't know, maybe the Trump family, I don't know, maybe he's a Native American. I don't know, maybe we should do a genetic test on it. So uh, before we let you go, one last one that uh, struck me. We all uh, know that Scott Pruitt, head of the EPA, friend environmentalist, of course, unless you like breathing, which is not a priority for them, air, $90,000 of taxpayer funds to fly first or business class. But in a related uh, thing, I hope people have missed this because of everything else that's going on. Ben Carson, who most of us have forgotten about, spent $31,000 for a dining room table. For his office. Do you have a $31,000 dining room table in your congressional office? Well, that would be an awful lot of paper plates. I, I, <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, you know, Republicans are always – were the ones – it's sort of like they used to be yeah. against deficits, not anymore. They used to be the leaders from, from Senator Proxmire's Golden Fleece Awards from Wisconsin oh, years ago. Great. They used to be the ones who would talk about government excess and waste much more than your fellow Democrats. Right. What do they say about a $31,000 <laughs> – Oakwood table or something for the do nothing head of HUD. Apparently nothing. And, and, and again, I wouldn't mind, but as he does that, he is simultaneously cutting the number of Section 8 certificates we have for mm-hmm. people to get into housing. He's, he's, he's denying seniors the opportunity to get housing and veterans. And I would, again, if he was, if he was not doing that, I, I wouldn't feel so bad, but it is such a hypocritical move. It's stunning. Carson, another great job Good on Look Behind the Curtain. Thanks, <laughs> Thank Congressman. You Thank you very much. Was Con- it as bad as you expected or was it okay the last 20? Oops, oh, he's gone. gone. That's why he hung up. He, he didn't hung have up. to answer the question. Congressman Mike Capulano is a Democrat representative of the 7th District. He joins us regularly for a look behind the curtain. His running list of government actions that do not get major news coverage but do have major consequences. And you can find it on his website. Up next... The poet Richard Blanco joins us for another edition of Village Voice. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And join us online for another edition of Village Voice, where we use poetry to make sense of the day, is Richard Blanco. Richard, as you know, is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His latest project is the Fine Press Book Boundaries. It's a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Richard, great to talk to you as always. Yep, great to talk to you, uh, Richard. And uh, the poem you're going to talk to us about was written after Newtown, Connecticut, where, of course, the kids in first... Uh, and sec- six and seven year olds were were shot. Twenty of them, uh, but it's equally relevant uh, today. Tell us about this poem. Sure, um, it's a poem from uh, an anthology, a uh, fairly recent anthology called "Bullets into Bells." Uh, the subtitle is "Poets and Citizens Respond to Gun Violence," um, and it's uh, it's just a, a wide range of, as the title says, gun violence. It's not just about uh, uh, school shootings, but just the ways that gun violence has affected so many people in so many different ways. And so, what's really neat about the anthology is that after each poem, they have uh, a citizen uh, sort of respond to the poem in the in the context of their own experience uh, with gun violence. 
Um, so I was thinking of reading that first because it'll add some context to this poem by Martin Espada that I'll that I'll read. You know, sound good? <laughs> yeah, but before you sure. do, I should say because as usual, you're being too modest. That that anthology is phenomenal. You have a wonderful <clears throat> poem yes. in there. We had two of your colleagues in here, and beyond this beautiful poem you're about to read and yours, the whole thing is really powerful. And to say it's timely is an understatement. So and also the, go it, get it. As Richard just mentioned, those responses oh, uh, 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 to the poem, it just makes it so rich and and even more. Um, relevant. Anyway. Yeah, it, so you're going to read the, it adds the an amazing from the Wheelers first? Yeah, and it, it adds, okay. a, like I was saying, just to echo, it adds an incredible context because, again, it grounds it in these are these are things that are, are happening to real people with real lives in real time. And also when you look at the, the breadth of the, the dates and the events going back all the way to Columbine, it makes you also think when you see all these pieces together, it makes you think uh, of the whole sort of uh, the whole the whole, the whole of it, how it has affected us in so many multiple ways and, and so broadly and deeply. Yeah, so okay. this is a response to Heal the Cracks in the Bell of the World. Uh, and the response is from David and Francine Wheeler, who are parents of Ben Wheeler and founders of Ben's Lighthouse. In the period following the murder of our son, this poem was read at several gatherings, and at one, I, David, spoke the words myself. We feel the irony of the location of our loss, Connecticut, the birthplace of the American firearms industry, Newtown, the home of that industry's trade group, nearby Waterbury, the former brass foundry capital of the country where furnaces melted brass to make bells, shifting their production to shell casings for the war effort, New Haven, home of Eli Whitney, who, <clears throat> who advanced the mass production of firearms more than anyone. To move through this landscape every day, carrying the weight of our murdered boy in the whole of our hearts, just his shape and size, is an unwanted permanent texture of our lives. It is, however, eclipsed in the dimension by the support, assistance, and love of our community tucked in these same hills, a community where we work to support teach and help others through the organization Ben's Lighthouse, created to honor Ben, his classmates, and his teachers, working to heal wherever we can. Helping is healing. So we stay and we listen for the bells. I'll tell you, maybe it's the way you read it, but that was almost like a poem. It was. Of Richard. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. It, it made me misty, and um, it's really just very, you can tell it's straight from the heart and thought out, too, and, and felt. So, so you can read the poem? So I just wondered, yeah, because this will make and, sense and in a second. And the way this works in the book the, is there's the, the poem, mm -hmm. and then there's the response from the, the, the parents who yeah. lost their son. Yeah, yeah, right after each poem, there's, there's some kind of response from someone in, in the trenches, so to speak. Now, I'm going to try to read this as best as I can in terms of uh, Martin Espada is a good old friend and poet, and he's an amazing reader and such a, such a powerful reader, I should say. So I'm um, going to try to channel his voice a little bit. I hope okay. he's not listening. <laughs> I hope he is. Because <laughs> it's, it's kind of like an incantation, as, as uh, David noted. Hear the cracks in the bell of the world. For the community of Newtown, Connecticut, where 20 students and six educators lost their lives 
to a gunman at Sandy, Sandy Hook Elementary School, December 14th, 2012. Now the bells speak with their tongues of bronze. Now the bells open their mouths of bronze to say, Listen to the bells a world away. Listen to the bell in the ruins of a city where children gathered copper shells like beach glass, and the copper boiled in the foundry, and the bell born in the foundry says, I was born of bullets, but now I sing of a world where bullets melt into bells. Listen to the bell in a city where cannons from the armies of the Great War sank into modern melted melt metal, bubbling like a vat of chocolate, and the many mouths that once spoke the tongue of smoke from the one mouth of a bell that says, I was born of cannons, but now I sing of a world where cannons melt into bells. Listen to the bells in a town with a flagpole on Main Street, a rooster weather vane keeping watch atop the meeting house, the congregation gathering to sing in times of great silence. Hear the bells rock their heads of bronze as if to say, Melt the bullets into bells, melt the bullets into bells. Hear the bells raise their heavy heads as if to say, Melt the cannons into bells, melt the cannons into bells. Hear the bells sing of a world where weapons crumble deep in the earth and no one remembers where they were buried. Now the bells pass the word at midnight in the ancient language of bronze, from bell to bell, like ships smuggling over liberation, from island to island, the song rippling through the clouds. Now the bells chime like the muscle beating in every chest, heal the cracks in the bell of every face listening to the bells. The chimes heal the cracks in the bell of the moon, the chimes heal the cracks in the bell of the world. So tell I us, think your friend will be proud there, uh, Richard Plonka. Yeah, it, 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 tell us a little bit about uh, I hope, your I hope friend so. Martin Scala and how this came to be. Well, he has a uh, he has a long history of uh, being a, a really a poet of social justice and social conscience uh, since way back when he was a lawyer uh, uh, and uh, defended. I think I think the right term was a, a tenant lawyer. He defended a lot of uh, a lot of people who were you know being displaced and whatnot. So he has a long history of <clears throat> not only through poetry but through practicing law. Uh, and so he is, I think, one of the pioneers in that sense, at least in our contemporary. Context of poems of this nature. Um, his dad, uh, I believe, was also involved in union work, and so his latest book, uh, where this poem is from, uh, Vivas, uh, is uh, is sort of it sort of takes some topic of uh, as a topic or in theme throughout the book. These kinds of these kinds of materials, these kinds of moments in history. So he's just really one of the true and sort of uh, such incredible integrity in his work, and always thinking about. About thinking about all these social issues in terms of uh, injustices, in terms of violence, in terms of well, you name it—the the whole spectrum of all the all all the the sort of ills in in the world. So he's an amazing person. You know, by the way, I was a tenant lawyer, so I assume that there's a future for me in poetry. If he has any <laughs> indication there, Could. when I was, you know, when when I read a decent number of the poems in uh, uh, the uh, anthology. The thought came to me that bells mean lots of different things. Obviously, to some people, they mean incredible happiness, and to 
some people they ring when there's something horribly sad happening. Is that what he's trying to do here to touch both or no? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that like all, <clears throat> like all sort of really uh, good and great poetry, um, it examines all the layers and nuances and angles of, of of something. So in this case, I I get the sense of okay, there's bells, uh, there's bells. First of all, there's a sort of an allusion to even school bells, right? So there's mm-hmm. kind of like that kind of that's kind of ominous in the background too. Um, there's a sense of uh, bells as in. Um, as in uh, John Donne's poem, uh, do not ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, the idea of the funeral bell, right? Which, yeah. So bells sort of signal that. But then there's bells, wedding bells, right? This idea of that bells mark time and thresholds in time and mark new beginnings, um, mark uh, 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 a tipping point of some kind, um, a change in direction, a celebration, an exaltation. There's also, of course, the illusion of bells, um, you know, at least in our own history, of the Liberty Bell and and the idea of freedom and and sort of so all these layers I think Martin is playing with and uh, and and uh, sort of it's at, at somehow it you know it's an incantation it feels at times like a lament and it is but it's also this idea of you know you know a figurative idea right of uh, well and also literal uh, literal at points of in turning bullets into bells or that in, in the ways that. Um, in the ways that, um, as he noted historically, uh, that uh, that they turn bells into bullets, so to speak. Um, so the idea of, of of having the bells also be sort of ringing a new age, a new freedom, right? The idea that if you know, as he says, as he says, if you know, uh, let's see, read that line where he says. Uh, Hear the bells sing of a world where weapons crumble deep in the earth and no one remembers where they were buried. So it's just working on so so many layers. But at the end, I think it's about a hopeful sort of change or direction, uh, a hopeful announcement, if you will. Um, and uh, and yet not being naive in the sense of, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know, well, let's just do this and that's easy. Right. Um, which is which is, you know, not what this poem is examining. Poems are often not about necessarily, you know, finite resolutions, which I think people often think poems are, are about that, but rather examining the complexity of a situation, but also uh, poems are about potentialities, right? Making us think of, of, of something in a new way that perhaps leads to some other kind of solutions. So bells, in a way, are, 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 are the chimes, as he says, the chimes that, that I, I think echo in us and, and make us think and create change in different ways. Um, these poets are thinking, poets and poem, poetry is thinking um, in ways beyond black and white. Well, you know, I, I think, and this is a fairly obvious observation, which I'm sure has been made before, but I'll make it again anyway, that you think of, uh, whether you're religious or not, um, a lot of the big momentous events in in your life are happen in a church with bells, whether it's a funeral, as you mentioned, or it's a wedding, as you mentioned, or it's a baptism. It's all those uh, big moments in life when people are all kind of gathered together. And if you're at a wedding, you think about how you want to get married or your own marriage. If you're at a funeral, it's about the person that died or your own death or the baptism, it's renewal and all that. You know, those times when you're in a, a, a ritual and thinking about those big things, you know what I mean? Like bells are really yeah. evocative to me for that reason. Yeah. And, 
And the way the poem itself, it, you know, reads, it, it almost is, is like the tolling of a yeah. bell. But I, I, I think you're like, yeah, spot on in, in that sense. I mean, I can, I, I'm, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, I'm hearing bells, right? And there's something about when we pause, because it makes us also pause, right? Like, for good, for bad, or, you know, it, it's just sort of the, 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 the whole sound of it, you know, makes us pause and set a moment sort of, uh, a reset button a re- or a reset moment. And I mean, I can feel them, right? You can hear the bells chiming. And again, it's sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's good, but there, it's always about pausing and changing or pausing to reflect on something and that's past and, uh, and, and present perhaps and, and moving towards what's the, you know, it's like, like a marker, right? And I, and I think that, you know, again, we, here we are um, with Parkland and we thought that I think Sandy Hook might have been that bell um, might have been that marker where we we all pause and 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 sort of and sort of um, you know shift or change or walk through some kind of threshold or mark something in our lives um, and um, but here we are again with Parkland and um, you know the bell here's another bell so to speak figuratively um, and I think what's happening at Parkland seems to be a different kind of bell uh, seems to be something that is. So maybe the bells are getting louder, so to speak, <laughs> but uh, some, maybe as we hoped Sandy Hook would be a tipping point, and, and it was a tipping point. I don't want to disregard all the work that, that, uh, that the parents and, and, and people associated with Sandy Hook have done, but, uh, but sort of on a larger scale, it seems these kids um, are, are really, I mean, they're making that, these bells ring. They're making us listen, right? They're making the country listen. So, so I... I I, I echo. I see that echo in here too. You know, here's a, here's another bell tolling, toll uh, for us to pause and maybe change and think about a new direction um, and um, a new possibility for us. You know, Richard Blanco. I'm a history major in college who knows absolutely nothing about history. So when <laughs> yeah. I was listening to the Wheeler response, uh, everybody listening, like a pathetic old me, knows about Eli Whitney and the cotton gin. I had no knowledge of uh, Eli Whitney and weaponry. Do you know uh, the history of Whitney on that front? Well, I I, I picked it up myself, and, and then there's actually another poem in um in in the anthology that takes up uh, Whitney himself oh, more directly. Okay. Yeah, uh, and that was really neat. But yeah, I, I you know one of the things that that comes up with for me is that. Um, you know, we we often think that poems are only for the English class, uh, and really poetry is is multidisciplinary. I mean, this was a history lesson for me as well. Um, uh, Whitney, uh, Eli, uh, yeah, and the, sort of the cotton gin is what we you know were taught in textbooks and whatnot. But um, he sort of through the use of interchangeable parts was sort of uh, responsible or or initiated the whole idea of interchangeable parts for guns, uh, because before they were basically handmade, and every time something broke they had to hand make uh, a replacement part so um so there's uh, it really was sort of the dawn of sort of this mass production of weapons in the united states um there's a statistic here where uh he obtained a contract from the u.s government to produce ten thousand muskets over two years which doesn't sound like a whole lot today but um that was unheard of right because these things were handmade so in a way you know um we don't we don't see and i'm you know i'm not necessarily finger pointing at Eli because we're looking at him from you know from our context you know back 150 years or something but uh but the idea that that um this this was 
part of what needs to be known, right? Um, and even all that about, um, um, you know, all that he mentions about the irony of Connecticut. And as we all know, I think, I think Eli eventually sold to uh, his, uh, that factory or his production or whatnot to um, Winchester. So, um, so that became that. And so looking at the history of guns in the United States and not only just, uh, uh, you know, even the production of guns and what that means. And, um, and even some say, you know, even the cotton gin, I was reading like, uh, you know, briefly that even the cotton gin in a way was responsible for, in a way for maintaining the institution of slavery in some uh-huh. weird way, you know? So, I mean, I don't, I'm poor Eli. I don't want to like, uh, Eli. Eli bash, but, <laughs> but these are contexts of history that we, we, that we don't get in history books. And, and we, as a educator, uh, education ambassador at the Academy of American poets, one of the things we like to profess is like, look, bring a poem into a social studies class, into a geography class, into a history class, into even mathematics class. Poets uh, are out there ta- talking and writing and thinking about all sorts of things in the world and not in the ways that you're ever going to get out of a textbook. So, yeah, it, it was really, really a, a history lesson for, for me as well. And, and again, also in the context of just thinking about you know how this romantic this romantic notion of of guns in America goes further back than the NRA. You know, it's this 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 sense of you know the of of it was one of our industries. We're we're a new country. We were you know people are trying to just you know you know prosper and make money and fortunes and and sort of guns are tied into that in some in some interesting way. You know, before you go, I just was looking up your friend Martin. He's from he lives in Massachusetts in Western. Massachusetts. He's an Amherst guy, in addition to being a beautiful poet. So he's a local guy, which yes, is he's, quite great. Yeah, yeah, he's been he's been teaching there for great. for for years, um, and um, yeah, for years and years. On he's that's been his his perch for a while. Right. Um, well, thanks for uh, yeah, Richard. Thanks for sharing that. You can go visit him up there and relive your glory days as town lawyers. Town lawyers, yeah. Exactly. I have a feeling he might have been a little better than I was. Obviously, oh, really? Richard, thank you. As Good to always. talk to you, Richard. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, this is so short. I wish I, I wish I could. I think we could almost use another hour, but but let's hope these this has ripples out there because this has been a wonderful wonderful conversation in, in a in an unfortunate way. Yeah, and it's a, a, a an incredible poem. Heal the cracks in the bell of the world. Thank you again, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. Richard Blanco joins us regularly to lead Village Voice, where we turn to poetry to make sense of the news of the day. Richard Blanco is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His latest project is the Fine Press Book of Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Next Tuesday, on March 6th, he'll be at an event in Portland to discuss the poetry anthology Bullets into Bells and Gun Violence at the Telling Room. This is just what we've been talking about. To learn more, go to tellingroom.org. Richard, thank you again. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow or join us live at the Boston Public Library for Margaret Marshall, former Chief Justice of the state's highest court, our Friday News Quiz, and our Friday All-Stars. Emily Rooney, Callie Crossley, and Shirley Leung. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Molly Boygon, Christina Biani. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker, and we're a production of WGBH. What is on the award-winning Greater Boston? By the way, I never say it's award-winning, which it happens to be, but I, it you're the one who says it. It is award-winning, Jim. Credit where credit is due. 
We're going to talk about Donald Trump's rather incredible performance yesterday, apparently pro-gun control and don't worry about the NRA. Is it real or an illusion? And then about something I wish was an illusion, Jared Kushner's half billion dollars in loans from people he met with in the White House. Rainey Aronson is also going to join me tonight from Frontline doing double duty again, talking about their documentary tomorrow night on Harvey Weinstein, which is terrific. And talk about terrific. She is on her way to the Oscars for Best Documentary Nomination for Abacus, that terrific documentary about that small bank in Chinatown that was targeted by the Manhattan DA. And finally, Amy Chua, remember Tiger Mother yes. Extraordinaire, yes. her latest book, Political Tribes, and how they are ripping America apart. She'll be with me, too. God, Jim, I tour de force. It's like a four-hour show in 30 minutes. <laughs> I don't know how I'm doing this. I am Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow or join us at the library and have a wonderful afternoon. <laughs>